everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to episode 169 of X-Labs, where we are getting scarily close to becoming X-relevant. I don't know if we'll have to change the name of the program when we get there, because we'll uh, no longer be... La- I guess we'll still be kind of lapsed, just not on the, uh, the current year stuff. But, fact remains, we are getting frighteningly close to being relevant. And, I mean, I, I would never call myself relevant, even in the best of times. So this is a, it's a new sensation, isn't it? Now today, we're taking a look at New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 16. Now, it's had an April 2021 cover date. The story's called One Step Behind, written by Vida... Or I, I, I'm so sorry, I don't know how to pronounce this name. Vida or Vida Ayala. Art by Rod Reese, or Rod Rice. Oh boy, I'm awful. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bezo White, Sapolsky, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale February 24 of 2021. Now we open at the Excalibur Lighthouse, where three mutant children, Liana, Monica, and Josh, are attempting to sneak into Otherworld uh, in order to probably annoy the bejesus out of me. <sighs> Actually, they're there to win a bet to, you know, uh, to fulfill a dare that they snap a picture of themselves on that weirdo Jamie Braddock's throne in Avalon. Looks like our man Richter is uh, guarding the lone Krakoan gateway from the 616 into Otherworld. However, during a pretty bodacious yawn, and yeah, I feel you, Julio, uh, the Tots sneak on by and slip through the gate. Now inside, they're faced by King Jamie the Weird, who is uh, drawn to look very Sienkiewiczian. I can say Sienkiewicz, Sienkiewiczian. There we go. Under Rod Reese's drawing apparatus. It's actually a really awesome-looking image, despite the fact that it's Otherworld, and uh, I have trouble caring about that. Now, Liana and Monica flee back through the gateway, but Josh does not. Next stop, info page. Dear Warpath's Diary. Now, if you recall, and I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, we got an info page an issue or two ago wherein Danny gave James a journal to fill out. And, well, uh, this is that. Uh, There are a lot of words on this page. Uh, if you recall, there were prompts, basically writing prompts to uh, let James be a little introspective. And we'll go through three of those here. We have prompt one, how do you view yourself? James says, with a mirror or in photos. <clears throat> prompt two, how do you view the world? With his eyes. You kidding me? He's, I mean, he can't be this dense, right? So this is either a really, really bad take on James or an extremely bad attempt at comedy, and I'm not sure which would be worse. Prompt three is, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And it's at this point he realized that he answered the first two prompts incorrectly. 
So I guess he is that dense. Um, he circles back to the first two questions. He basically views himself as a warrior at harmony with the earth. And he gives a non-answer about optimism and pessimism. He, you know, he kind of weighs the pros and cons of being either one. Next up, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters are Danny Moonstar, Karma, Cypher, Magic, Wolfsbane, That Weirdo Jamie Braddock, Anole, Scout, Rainboy, Cosmar, No Girl, and The Shadow King. Back to comics, and we're over to the Wild Hunt. Now, Cosmar has run back to Farouk's place to cry about Danny turning her down last issue. If you recall, she asked Danny to kill her in the Crucible so she can come back in a non-reality warped body. Now, she's comforted by No Girl, Rainboy, Anilay, and Scout. Amal tells Cosmar that it was cruel of Danny to turn down her request and offers to give her a brief taste of what it is she's looking for. And so, if you remember, we've been getting these synergy uh, pages here where mutants are working together, letting their powers work in tandem. And we get that here. The Shadow King and No Girl, they do some synergist mutant tandem, and they give us consciousness swapping en masse. And the five kids all swap bodies. Scout, in Rainboy's body, watches her regular body and comments how adorable she is. The problem here is these are all mutants, young mutants, who are now suddenly in unfamiliar, powered bodies. So this all goes a bit caca pretty quickly. The bodies seem to even begin to decay. Uh, now this is all very fascinating to Farouk. He's really enjoying seeing his machinations play out. Eventually the kids are returned to their proper bodies, wherein they all take stock of themselves and you know get their footing back. Anole comments that it hurts, but it was fun. Scout, after checking on No Girl's brain jelly, rips into Amal for irresponsibly endangering all of their lives. To which Farouk is all, hey, it's all good. Remember, death ain't no thing anymore. Scout reminds him that, in her case, that might not be true. And, even if it were, dying still sucks and should probably be avoided. It's like she's listening to this show. She stomps out, while the other kids wonder why she's making such a big deal out of this, and Farouk tells him, eh, don't mind her. She's just chosen the selfish path. Info page. An article from the Crooked Caller, the premier newspaper of the Crooked Market. Well, it's basically a tabloid, but in the Crooked Market, that's good enough. We learn a bit more about some of the kingdoms here of Otherworld, including Blightspoke and uh, Blightspoke's Sheriff Whitechapel, who I think we saw... During that, uh, I don't know what they called it, like a Congress or a Senate meeting very early in uh, Ex of Swords. There's also a mention of Witchbreed, which is, of course, a boring reference to that boring Neil Gaiman 1602 story. Now, the Witchbreed that they're mentioning is currently on the move throughout Otherworld. Huh. Back to comics. Now, you remember how an issue or two ago started with some young mutants being interrogated by magic after their habitat was destroyed by bullies? Kinda? You remember that? Well, this is following up on that. Ilyana confronts the bullies who wrecked the property, and Magic informs them that, bullying aside, they broke a Krakoan law. That law being respect this sacred land. After a fairly contentious and possibly physical little to-do, we learn that Magic has managed to make these goofballs understand the error of their ways and how they're going to pay for this. And so, before we know it, the bullies are rebuilding the habitat. Cypher tells Ileana that Krakoa could just, like, grow a new habitat without a problem. But, you know, it's a matter of principle at this point. 
The bullies are happily working and being syrupy sweet to the younglings. Uh, they're giving them dolls and stuff. It's a, it's, it's a cute little scene. Just then, Monica and Liana run up to our heroes to spill the beans on what happened to Josh in Otherworld, or what they think might have happened to Josh in Otherworld. Just the fact that he didn't come back from Otherworld, I guess. Danny starts to ream them out for sneaking into Otherworld, because the last thing she wants is to spend a whole bunch of pages somewhere horrendously boring. I mean, she's actually upset because, uh, you know, mutants can suffer permanent deaths there. Uh, worth noting, the kids say that they're too scared to tell the X-Men about this. To which, unfortunately, nobody corrects them, you know, that there are, in fact, no X-Men. I mean, did Hickman just sneak that into the latter pages of X of Tens, knowing that not even his fellow writers would still be paying attention at that point? Right? And what's more, don't we have editors to kind of catch this stuff? All right. Uh, Danny checks if Magic still needs her here, which, I mean, Danny wasn't actually doing anything but standing around anyway, and so Ileana tells her it's cool to go, and so she does. Back to the sextant, Danny is packing for her trip. It looks like she's putting a bagel bush into a box, which sounds far more perverted than it actually is. Karma is with her, and they talk a bit more about her strange dreams. Now, if you recall, and I feel like I'm saying if you recall an awful lot, and I apologize for that, I'm just a very repetitive fellow, but Danny was doing some dream analysis with Karma an issue or two back. Karma decides she wants to tag along on the Otherworld trip, since all of this stuff was triggered in her during that big battle with the Amenthi demons in Otherworld anyway, at the very end of X of Tens. Now, before we know it, we're at the Excalibur Lighthouse, and Richter is very apologetic for indulging in a yawn long enough for these three children to slip by. Scene shift to Arbor Magna. Now, Rain is checking in with Eyeboy and Prodigy of X-Factor regarding her Fleet Seed request to look deeper into the Tear mystery. Tear, of course, is Rain's son, who she believes to be dead and would like him to be resurrected. Now, it turns out here that Tear cannot be resurrected, because Cerebro still shows him to be alive. Alive, but different. Prodigy suggests that this might have to do with Tyr being half-god. Rain is aghast and begins to think the worst. You know, that like Tyr is all alone and scared somewhere, feeling as though she abandoned him, and uh, so she runs off. Eyeboy suggests that this chat didn't go quite the way he thought it would. He assumed she'd be a bit happier to learn that her son is alive, at least as far as Cerebro is concerned. Prodigy offers that uh, maybe there are some fates worse than death. Next stop, Avalon. Danny and Karma meet with that weirdo Jamie Braddock. And we learn that he basically let Josh hop on a dinosaur and start gallivanting through Otherworld. So Josh is probably the witch breed mentioned as being on the move in the crooked newspaper. Danny offers Jamie the bagel bush as a tribute, which again sounds far more perverted than I, I mean for it to. He uses his reality powers to transform it into bottles labeled Drink Me, because uh, we're going to get a few Alice in Wonderland references here, because uh, I think that's a way to evoke depth, maybe? <clears throat> maybe? I don't know. Uh, also some protein bars, sausages, gold pieces, and a big black stick of dynamite. Okay, then. In exchange, Jamie provides the ladies with a horse and points them in the direction that Josh left in. It's here that the coloration of the pages changes. It goes from like the lush kind of watercolor painted uh, pages we get to uh, more black and white with just shades of brown. It's a really, really cool effect that uh, probably should have been used a bit during X of Tens. It would have uh, at least made the thing more interesting to look at. Now they talk a little bit more about Karma's dreams here before they run into 
Usagi Yojimbo. It's actually a little rabbit in a in like a it looks like a karate gi. Now this, of course, is our second Alice in Wonderland reference in as many pages, but uh, they follow the robed white rabbit to a castle in the distance. It turns out that it's the Holy Republic of Fae. Next we see Danny and Karma are in stocks knelt before Merlin. He charges the witch breed with trespassing in his realm and orders them into the dungeon. Back to the sextant where Rain has rushed home to be comforted by Danny, only to find that Danny ain't home. Uh, Danny did leave a note, though. We next rejoin Josh. Remember him? He's still riding his dinosaur throughout Otherworld. He happens across a modernish looking city and thinks it looks promising. Promising for what? I don't know. He decides to head in anyway. It looks like it's Sevelith, the vampire realm, where, if I'm remembering right, the horseman Death still ought to be. Uh, you know, he's feeding everyone there, uh, at least I think he was. Then we close out the issue with Danny and Karma being walked into a Fey dungeon. That's where we leave it. Next episode, Team X in effect. Well, two-thirds of it anyway, but uh, let's talk about this issue here. Um, so, uh, it, was a, it was a good run while it lasted, huh? Uh, maybe I'm being a little too harsh. I'm definitely being a little too harsh and hyperbolic here. Maybe I'm just letting my knee-jerk otherworld bias get the better of me. But uh, in reading this issue... It seemed like they, they were trying to cram all the interesting bits that we enjoyed so much over the past few issues into as few pages as possible in order to bring us back to friggin' Otherworld. I mean, is there something about this place that I'm missing? Something so interesting that our writers can't help themselves but to indulge? I re- I'm just so, I'm so done with Otherworld. <laughs> I'm just so done with it. Let's focus on the things I did like here. We get another very strong scene with Scout. Now, as we know, she's quite worried about whether or not she would be resurrected if she were to perish. Really not much new about this, but it's nice to see that it's still bubbling away here, and uh, more people are learning about her worries and fears. We still don't know quite what Amal Farouk's goal or purpose is here, but it remains quite interesting. Uh, Well, I I guess interesting enough. It might be the most interesting I've ever found the Shadow King, because his stories aren't always, you know, among my favorites. Uh, We got Magic approaching the bullies, uh, not over the fact that they were bullying, but that their destructive behavior was disrespectful to Krakoa. I feel like this was a good way to sidestep the bullying issue entirely, as we really didn't need an entire issue of, like, he said, she said, right? It's also something that just plain can't be argued. They were disrespecting their sacred land, and, you know, when you break the law, you gotta... It's better than going to the hole, right? You gotta rebuild the habitat that you destroyed. Uh, the rain and tear story was advanced, and it's interesting that Cerebro is still getting regular backups from Tear. Um, I am looking forward to seeing where this is headed, unless, of course, it's headed into Asgard, in which case, wake me when it's over. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, we'll still talk about it, no matter which way it goes, of course. Uh, the art here, absolutely ridiculous. Um, I say it every time, and you're probably tired of hearing it, but uh, Rod Reese is flippin' fantastic. Um, I mean, he even makes Otherworld look interesting. And, and emphasis on look interesting, because unfortunately he's not a miracle worker. But uh, just a fantastic artist, a wonderful, wonderful talent. Uh, I love seeing his stuff here. Now, let's flip it over here, and uh, I'll talk about some of the stuff I wasn't too keen on. And I mean, if you've been listening to this show for a little while now, it's uh, no surprise, right? It comes down to my usual bugbears about this era. Info pages and Otherworld. 
Those have been my main complaints, I feel. Uh, Neither are always bad, but both are things I'd rather see less of. This is definitely one of those situations where I feel like info pages are being used as a way to avoid having to write out a scene. I mean, we're getting Warpath characterization in info pages, and it's been that way for for a minute now, right? I, I'm just not uh, not a fan of that. It feels kind of like a cop-out. It feels like a uh, current-year attempt at, like, a workaround, right? Where we can say that we're still, you know, we're still following, you know, uh, James Proudstar here, but uh, are we? <laughs> I mean, not really. Um, all, we, all we learn is that he uh, is a very literal fellow, Um who uh, isn't uh, isn't quite as introspective, or he's becoming more introspective, I guess, which I guess is progression, but I mean, I don't know. Well, I guess I'll reserve judgment for that. Uh, let's go to Otherworld. Uh, the, the premise for revisiting Otherworld here isn't interesting. Um, I, I, I mean, they did kind of lampshade this with the the whole premise of this, uh, this Reign of X era of New Mutants here, that, you know, the kids need direction. You know, the children are, they have too much free time. They've got idle hands, and uh, they're getting into trouble. In that regard, I can understand and appreciate this, but, I mean, it's Otherworld again. (laughs) I mean, uh, and I actually did a bit of research on these three young mutants here. It turns out they were created by Vita Ayala during the Age of X-Men. Now, if we add them to those other kids who were hassling Scout an issue or two back, and it's starting to feel like one of this book's mission statements is to implement as many Ayala-created Age of X-Men characters into the main line as possible. Nothing inherently wrong with that, but... I don't know, I feel like we've already got way too many characters acting as little more than wallpaper nowadays, and do we really need more? And also, I mean, (laughs) I hate to hop here, but... How long is this other world story gonna go? And do we need two books dealing with Otherworld at the same damn time? Do we need one book dealing with it? My answer to both questions is, as you might have been able to guess, no. (laughs) No, not at all. I can only hope that the books are just vamping for time before the Hellfire Gala. I'm really not sure how the pieces are going to fall come July. All we really know is uh, what new books are coming out. Uh, For all I know... Maybe the books dealing with Otherworld, Excalibur, and now New Mutants will both be canned, or hiatused by then. Who knows? I couldn't even... I wouldn't bet a penny on either direction there. Um, Now, finally, I know this ship has definitely sailed on this, and it's likely I'm the only one that this still bugs, but I begin to twitch every time one of our characters mentions the X-Men, since we've been told definitively that there are no X-Men. I mean, it's kind of a major plot point in the Reign of X books, right? Is it too much to ask to get a little bit of quality control here? I mean, I get it. I still don't like it, but I get it when we're dealing with a book like Champions, right? That's not under the X-Men umbrella. It's in a different editorial office. But this, the same editors. There's no excuse for it. I mean, have the kid... I mean, the kid says they were scared to talk to the X-Men, right? Have the kids stay, say instead that they were scared to talk to Excalibur, since it's their lighthouse, or scared to go to the Quiet Council because, you know, they're the, the, the rulers and, and grown-ups on the island. Anything but the X-Men, because, as we know, there aren't any. Uh, and I apologize, that might just be a Chris problem, but, I mean, when we're told something is that important and it's just ignored by the rest of the line, I mean, why, why, should, we, why should we care about it? Overall, 
There is some stuff I loved here, some stuff I didn't. Uh, your otherworld mileage may, and for your sake, hopefully does vary. Uh, it was, of course, gorgeous throughout. Um, and, of course, the coloring during the otherworld bits was quite inspired. So I'd recommend grabbing this just for the art. Um, the scout scene was strong. Uh, the uh, rain and tear stuff is interesting. Just the other 50% of this book that was a uh, circle in the otherworld drain was uh, a bit much, and I'm tired of it. But uh, I think a net positive, uh, mostly on the uh, on the strength of the art and uh, the questions we have about clone resurrection. But that's all I got to say about this. We have zero mailbag items to cover today, but we do have a little bit of news. The X-Men election has been decided, and uh, rather than making us wait until the Hellfire Gala... Marvel spoiled it for us. Um, The winner is, I mean, it's Polaris. Duh. I mean, that was never (laughs) really in question. And in addition, you know, when we got this result, I was like, oh, okay, you know what? I can deal with it. You know, we found out who won, but we still don't know who our team's going to be comprised of, so we still have, you know, a mystery. We're going to be surprised during the Hellfire Gala, and about an hour later, Marvel revealed who the new X-Men team was going to be in full. And so I will share that here with you as well. Our new team consists of Cyclops, Jean Grey, Polaris, Rogue, Sunfire, Sink, and X-23 as Wolverine. Decent team. A decent team. I'm interested to see how uh, how this team comes together and works together. Uh, we don't often see Sunfire as a member of the team. Uh, Sink, uh, he's been around for almost 30 Oh God, where'd my life go? He's been around for almost 30 years now And it's nice to see him um, being bumped up here I don't know if they're going to I don't know about his time in the vault here Um, I don't know if I I guess there's like time compression there So maybe he's going to come back older and wiser And even if he doesn't, it's fine But uh, I'm interested to see what his new status quo is And we'll find out in just a few episodes What's going on in the vault uh, X-23 is Wolverine. That's fine. I mean, Logan is in... I mean, he's in every book anyway, and I'm sure he'll be in X-Men a, a fair amount as well. Uh, Rogue leaving Excalibur and leaving Gambit. Or, I mean, not leaving Gambit, but not being in the same team roster as Gambit is interesting. Polaris, I, I, you know, Rogue and Polaris, I don't know if they're going to be working double duty. Um... I don't know if I want them to be working double duty here. Uh, Polaris, I'm I'm really enjoying an X-Factor. And it would be a shame to see her leave that book. But as I mentioned earlier in this very discussion, we have enough mutants out there who are basically wallpaper anyway. So maybe this will open up a spot for another character. Maybe maybe when Siren gets the Morrigan out of her, she'll join X-Factor. Who knows? Maybe Jamie Madrox will do something that doesn't make him look like a complete joke for the first time in several years. I really can't say. Uh, Now, as far as Rogue is concerned... I mean, what is Excalibur anyway? <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, I'm happy to see her out of that book because that book is an exercise in you know square pegs into round holes at the very best. And like I said earlier, I don't even know if it's still going to be a book after um, after the Hellfire Gala. Who who even can tell? I mean, I have no reason to assume that it won't be, but uh, it is losing one of its uh, key members here. So maybe it'll uh, wind up with a new direction, or maybe it'll just uh, wind up a little bit less interesting. Who knows? But that is the news for today. 
And as always, if you have any news tidbits you'd like to send my way to discuss on the show, please feel free to do so. If you would just like to chat me up, say hello, hey, do that as well. I'm a very, very lonely fellow, as you can tell. Uh, you can reach me very easily. I'm at Twitter at Ace Comics. Uh, you can also shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, there's an Instagram that I don't quite know how to use. It's 90s X-Men. Uh, you can go to our Facebook group, 90s X-Men on Facebook. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can hop on over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Though, if you're listening to this program, you probably already know that. But if you're listening to this program and you kind of dig it, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it, please do me a solid and tell a friend or two. It would really, really mean a lot to me. But that's all I got for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 180 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, well, it's X-Force Day, and uh, I don't have much of a pre-ramble prepared, so uh, we might as well just, uh, I guess, hop on in. Today is X-Force Volume 6, number 18, which had a May 2021 cover date. Stories called Shadows of the Mind, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Gary Brown, not uh, not Joshua Kassara this time out. Colors, Guru EFX. Letters VCs Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro, Basso, White, Sobolski, cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale on St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 2021. Now we open this issue with uh, Black Tom Cassidy uh, asleep, and he's dreaming of being tickled by the juggernaut and his sausage-sized fingers. Huh, so maybe that's why Kane isn't allowed here, I don't know. He's then stirred awake by a cracka-cracka sound, and he sees a well, slender man in the distance. Well, sorta. is almost definitely whatever monstrous form of Quentin Quire that Zeno made to cause trouble. 
Now, this causes him concern for several reasons, including the fact that uh, he wasn't alerted to this foreign presence by the uh, Veg of Krakoa. He wonders if he's been cut off from the island, and I think then he's consumed by the foliage. At least that's the way it looks. I'm not entirely sure. Double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred follows, and we've got Black Tom, Sage, Jean Grey, Wolverine, Beast, Kid Omega, and Phoebe Cuckoo. And we pick back up over at the Green Lagoon, where Sage is fairly drunk. And you know, credit where it's due here. It's actually been a minute since we've had a character getting sloppy drunk in these books. It felt like for a little while there. I mean, it was every issue. Somebody would have to crack one open, but... uh. It feels like it's been a little while, so uh, I guess we'll allow it, as if we have any say to begin with. Now, later on during the issue, it's going to be alluded to that Sage might just have a drinking problem because she's been drinking a lot. I don't know if this is headed for very special issue territory, but uh, I guess we can just keep our fingers crossed. Anyway, she asks Blob, who is Sans Handlebar Mustache here, uh, for another, and he cuts her off. And she starts singing a song about Blobs and goes to leave. Blob reaches over to help her, but what she sees is like a demonic entity. You know, almost like a uh, Sienkiewicz light sort of a demon. And it looks not unlike what the uh, folks on that cruise ship saw last issue here, where they were kind of just like deformed versions of characters that we know. And this one, of course, is the Blob. Now Tessa, she gets up. And she grabs an unfinished drink off of a table and guzzles it down, only to find that it's uh, full of blood and worms, from the looks of it. I figure that that can't be right. I, maybe she's still just seeing things. Next stop, the Summer House. Here, Wolverine's having a cup of coffee when he's approached by a very off-model Jean Grey. She tells him that it's too late to drink coffee, to which he brings up a really good point here. He responds by saying that, Hey, you know what? We're always a step through a portal away from being any time of day. So what does time even matter anymore? It's a pretty interesting statement there, isn't it? Also, he's still dealing with the Vampire Nation stuff in his own book, so nighttime is the right time. Naturally, it should come as no surprise that there is no editorial footnote to direct anyone not in the know to Wolverine's solo book, but that's kind of the way this goes. Anyway... Logan and Jean kiss, during which Jean sees Wolverine as a monster, kind of like the ones we've been seeing, and pulls away. And it's a pretty gross scene here. It looks like a Wolverine like bit like her bottom lip off, but uh, I'm thinking that that probably didn't happen. Uh, before they can talk about this, Scott enters and asks if Jean's coming to bed. And uh, boy, I hate this thruple that we're in here with uh, Scott, Logan, and Jean. This is they need to they need to pick a lane here. From here, we go back to Krakoa, and I'm guessing it's the next day because it is daylight. Quentin and his cuckoo hang glide over to the point in order to chat up Beast and Sage about everything that went down last issue. The Jumbo Carnation attack, the cruise ship stuff, I figure it's all that kind of stuff. And it's worth noting that there is an editor's note pointing us to the last issue for the details. So uh, there you go. These notes are a little bit scattershot, but I will take them where I can get them. Now, upon arrival, they find that Beast had recently suffered a stroke, so he's on the ground. Quentin and Phoebe, they figure they'll, you know, take him to the healing gardens and get him, get him fixed up, but they are stopped by Sage. She, uh, well, she's no longer drunk, so again, this is probably the next day. She says that she and Beast have an agreement just in case anything like this were to happen. 
She offers Quentin and Phoebe the opportunity to download her thoughts to get filled in. Now, it turns out that Sage was unable to sleep the night before because an entity kept trying to bully its way into her dreams. Phoebe, for some reason, refers to Sage as being cold, which, despite being 100% true and perhaps even an understatement, seems to get under Sage's skin just a little bit. Now, these next few pages are a little bit strange. It's almost like everyone is just finishing everybody else's sentences here. I'm not sure if this is intentional, like that they're all kind of using the same mind or they're all kind of inside the same memories here. It is pretty confusing, but we will do our best to navigate it. Now, Quentin and Phoebe, they came to the point in order to warn Beast of this psychic entity. This is an entity that can attack from anywhere. Doesn't need Krakoan gates to travel because it, ins- it assaults the mind. Quentin asks if he can see surveillance footage of the point to see what happened to Beast, to which we learn that uh, there ain't any, because X-Force, being the CIA of Krakoa, can't risk having any of their discussions or activities leaked. And that's a fair enough point there. Quentin decides that he will then become the camera and take a peek into Beast's mind. Which, I mean, for Quentin Quire, wouldn't that be... Wouldn't that, like, be option A? Like, no need to announce it or wait for surveillance footage. He normally would have done that by now. Maybe he's hesitant, as he has a kind of a rough idea that the baddie in this story is going to be revealed as a version of himself, but we'll get there. Now they pop into the nebulous shadow room, and Quentin, who's apparently Phoebe's phallic tool, gets right down to it. And yes, they they make a comment that he is uh, her tool. Um... Uh, We flash back to the night before, where Sage calls it a night and prepares to head down to the Green Lagoon to get wasted. We saw that. Now, Hank comments that uh, this is kind of becoming a habit for her, to which she justifies it as being the only way she can slow down her brain and get a bit of peace. And yeah, that's uh, what they all say. Now, once Tessa is gone, Beast decides, uh, you know what, I'm going to take a nap. And he falls asleep and begins to dream. He dreams of his furry self as a kid. You know, he wasn't furry as a kid, but here, in his dream, he is. He's in a classroom where the teacher is constantly berating him and putting him down for being stupid. The teacher turns out to be that demonic Quentin Choir. Beast fought off the psychic assault valiantly, which is likely why he wound up suffering the stroke. We go back to the shadow room, and Quentin asks Sage for confirmation that he is the bad guy. And Sage is all, yeah. No, duh, you are. It's a, well, not him exactly, but a version of him, a form of him, a piece of him. Phoebe tells Quentin that he's not that guy anymore, so don't really dwell on it. She then asks Sage if they've ever faced anything like this before. Sage recalls their semi-recent run-in with the Pale Girl, which, uh, despite their duh being no editorial footnote to point us there, was from the opening arc of Wolverine Volume 7. Quentin brushes this off, though, because the pale, the pale girl was nothing. She wasn't nothing here, because right now, they're dealing with an Omega. Now, at this point, Beast is mumbling. He's attempting to beg for death, because he is awake, he's just unable to function. Quentin refuses to give him his sweet release. However, as he walks away, Sage saunters over and breaks Hank's neck, killing him. You see, this was uh, their agreement. It was should either of their minds become compromised in any way, one would kill the other. And uh, this feels like it's supposed to be a lot more poignant and smart than it actually is. It's, uh, you know, really just further exploitation of the resurrection protocols. And if I'm not mistaken here, this is, I want to say, Beast's first ever death. 
So for a character with just just shy of 60 years under his belt, um, this should be a far bigger deal than it actually is turning out to be. From here we go to an info page where Sage explains what's going on, rendering much of this issue redundant. She calls back to Domino being held captive by Zeno and having bits and pieces of herself used to make others. We saw the Domino clone, right? And we also see that uh, she had some of her skin grafted onto the the Zeno agents, those reaver alikes there. And uh, she, uh, Sage that is, suggests that Zeno has done the very same with Quentin. And since Quentin has died like a hundred times, it's hard to know just how bad this might become. She's unsure if there are any unknown effects remaining in their minds from these psychic assaults as well, so she doesn't know if this, uh, this evil Quentin Choir clone left a mark. She isn't sure. It's something she's going to observe and report on from this point on. Back to comics, and we're at the Sunset Cliffs, where Quentin and Phoebe have themselves a chat. QQ deduces that the entity attacks when he sees a vulnerability. So like when they're sleeping, or dead tired, or sloppy drunk, I suppose. He suggests that it's waiting for him in the astral plane. And so our next stop is the astral plane. Quentin finds himself in a Xeno lab littered with body-filled canisters. Naturally, he is confronted with the the twisted Xeno-made version of himself. We jump back to reality to see that he's begun to seize and foam at the mouth. To which it's like, oh no, Quentin Quire might die. Again. For the 118th time But that is where we end the story But we do have an info page to close us out And it's more from Sage Now it's a logbook where she shows us That she keeps track of everything So in the interest of uh, completeness um, Here are some Sage statistics Over the course of her life She has petted 325 dogs She's drank 7,653 cups of chai She's almost stepped on one landmine as a child, which actually is a callback to, a, uh, to an older story. She's eaten 629 pomegranates, and of those 629, there were an average of 998 seeds in them. She's owned 34 pairs of glasses. She's uh, cried listening to Purcell's aria, Dido's Lament, 12 times. She's danced to Mariah Carey 671 times. Yeah, right. Picks or it didn't happen. She's been kissed by two people who really meant it, and 22 who did not. So here's the thing. Despite the fact that she can quantify almost everything in her life, she's actually lost count of how many drinks she consumes in a given evening. So uh, I think we are headed for a uh, sloshy sage storyline. But that'll do it for this issue, and next time out we're going to be working our way toward the tail end of the uh, Cable volume. So look forward to that. But for now... Let's talk some X-Force. Well, this was just kind of a uh, there issue, wasn't it? Uh, Not a whole lot to get excited about in either direction, really. Feels like, um, I mean, I've said this just about every episode of late. It feels like we're just, uh, we're getting ourselves to the Hellfire Gala at this point. And we're kind of just uh, treading water here. And to do this with the Quentin story, I mean, it does help to mature the character. Uh, Whether or not that's needed, I guess our mileage will probably vary. But So I come away from this issue with uh, three main takeaways here. Uh, The uh, the topmost takeaway is the Death of Beast. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I very well might be. I don't think Beast has ever died before. And he's been around since 1963, so long, long, long time. And his first death 
that, as far as I can tell, happens here in a very underwhelming sort of way. No sort of uh, no ceremony to it. No, no real feeling of loss because we know he's going to be back right away. I mean, there was a mention in one of the info pages that Sage has to come up with a cover story for a little while while they're you know still cooking the new McCoy. So it's a. Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I've complained about this a lot. I feel like it's becoming uh, broken record territory here, but the resurrection protocols here, uh, we're relying on them way too much. And I understand that they are kind of the overarching angle right now, right? This is the tool. This is the, the premise. This is the concept. So if it's there and you don't use it, then, I mean, I'd probably be calling them out for not using it. I feel like we. I feel like there is a way to kind of govern and calibrate, but uh, maybe not next force. I don't know. Um, as much as I've hated Beast uh, over the past uh, several months, several years actually, by the way he's been depicted, I still didn't want to see him die this way. I feel like if you're gonna do it, it should have been maybe a little less throwaway, because I don't know that this story is going to have. Far-reaching and lingering effects here It's just uh, another Xeno thing And I mean, Xeno's been around for Two years now, just about And we still know Very little about them we, I don't think we know anything new that we haven't figured out In issue three or four Of this volume It's just, oh, they have body shops all over the place And they are, uh, well, doing the Only thing that they've done Since they've been introduced at this point So not a fan of killing Beast in this way. Not a fan of killing any character in this sort of way. I just it, it cheapens everything, and it's one of those things. And I've said this again. This is another Chris Chestnut. How do you walk this back? You know, it's. I, I think it was Evan who had the uh, theory that the real X Men are all in stasis underground in Krakoa right now. So, and and it's scary. I, I think that's the only way you can do this. It's going to feel like a cop out and a slap to the slap to the face. But I think it's the only way you can. Organically uh, walk all of this back here So we can be like, oh, so Quentin Quire didn't die 115 times And and Jean Grey didn't die an extra five times And Wolverine didn't die an extra three times I think that's the only way we can do this I I mean, I feel like we're at a rock and a hard place here But, uh, nah, you know, we'll worry about that as we get closer to, uh, to uh, whatever reveals are yet to come Another takeaway I got here is uh, Sage's alcoholism and this is something that I've kind of mentioned a whole lot during these uh, during these issues here. Uh, these characters drinking and, and reveling and just uh, having themselves a good time all the time. And how, and I hate the word problematic, but how problematic that could possibly be. But I'll give them this. Sage, her whole gimmick here is that she's got a computer for a brain, right? If you're going to be... Constantly revving and running at uh, at full cerebral speed and pace here, it might stand to reason that you try to self medicate. So in Sage's situation, I can appreciate her imbibing because she's just looking for peace. This isn't like uh, drinking her troubles away. This is just drinking to normalcy. You know, this is her trying to just shut the computer down for a bit, slow the computer down a little bit. So for her, it makes a whole lot of sense, and I I appreciate that that's kind of the angle they're going in here. You had a beast caller out for it. it's like, hey, you know, you're making a habit about uh, out of going to the Green Lagoon every night, and she's like, you know, I can't slow it down, you know, I can't slow down the brain. So this is all I can do, the only way I can do it. So I like that. 
I like that. I think it's a. Uh, I think it's an appropriate uh, use of this sort of uh, addiction angle, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes here. Despite not really caring for the sage character all that much. Uh, the final takeaway here is uh, Quentin's maturity. Um, I still don't like the new costume. I think that that takes away a lot of what made Quentin Quire Quentin Quire. He's supposed to be the the malcontent, right? The nonconformist, the one who's going to wear the ugly T-shirt. And here he is in spandex, you know? He's in an actual uniform. Just don't like that. But it is a way to uh, physically uh, show that he's trying to make changes in his life here because had he... You know, remained in his regular slacker clothes or his hipster clothes or however you want to label those, his clothes, and just said, "You know, I'm a different person now." It really doesn't. It really doesn't sink in quite as much as it does seeing him in a you know fully regaled you know X Force costume. Where, okay, I'm going to behave differently, and I'm also going to look differently. So uh, you can actually see the fact that i've made changes and i'm in the process of uh you know metamorphosizing yeah for lack of a better term here so i still don't know if i want to see quentin choir do this i don't know if i want him to be just another guy i don't know that uh that's necessarily the the direction that we're headed in here but um that's another one of the things i guess we're just gonna have to wait and see um for all we know uh we i mean we saw that Right before X attends, Quentin Quire was yanked through the portal by uh, Mikhail, and we didn't see him die. You know, so there may very well be the real Quentin Quire out there, uh, and this one might just be uh, retroactively a dupe. So that could definitely lead to some uh, lead us down some interesting paths here. I just hope that it's not going to do it around the same time that Prodigy meets his former self, and as uh, it feels like these books, whether they're planned to do this or not. Are, we're telling similar stories You know, it feels like we're going to be If we're going to explore an angle Like two or three of the books at once are going to do it Like, we're going to all go to Madripoor But for different reasons And not show up in each other's stories Here we have Quentin and a cuckoo uh, In Cable, we have Cable and a cuckoo It's, I don't know I guess we'll, again, we'll just wait and see uh, One last thing I really didn't uh, dig the art all that much in this issue um, This Felt like the uh, that episode of Seinfeld with the Two Face, right? Uh, where Jerry, I think, it was the Festivus episode where Jerry's dating a woman who, in certain lights and in certain situations, looks one way, but in other lights and in other angles, she's like her her features are sunken and she looks uh, like just really unpleasant. Uh, that's kind of what this art is to me because there were certain pages here that looked good. And then you get to another one, like the uh, the Jean one jumps out uh, immediately. Uh, seeing that Jean Grey was just like, whoa. That was very, very off-model to me and uh, didn't like looking at it. And there were a few pages like that, but again, there were a few pages that weren't like that. So kind of a two-face of an issue, uh, art-wise, but uh, nothing, uh, nothing to get too wound up about. Uh, overall, not a bad issue. Not a bad issue for what I'm projecting on it to be a water-treading issue, so... Definitely worth a flip through if you are so inclined. But uh, that's all I got to say about this issue of X Force, and uh, that's all I got for you today. So if you'd like to reach out to me, say hello, say anything you'd like. Uh, feel free to find me on Twitter. I'm easy to find there. I'm Ace Comics. You can also shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook. 90s X-Men is our little group. Also, Instagram, 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And that is anywhere you can find sound and noise on the Internet. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, Maybe share it around, maybe spread the word I would appreciate any help in that regard Because I am terrible at that So uh, I would thank you so much to help me <laughs> And uh, I would also like to thank you for sharing some of your time with me today I really, really appreciate it And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon See ya How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 181 of X-Labs, where, uh, well, it's uh, one of those good news, bad news situations today. Uh, The good news is that it's Cable Day, and uh, Cable is more often than not a very fun book to read. The bad news is, it's Cable Day, and Cable is a book that uh, nobody reads, and also, uh, as a result, uh, very few people actually listen to the Cable episodes of this program. Not that people are listening to the other episodes in a great number, but uh, Cable is an especially painful uh, dose of reality for your uh, your humble and inferiority-laden host. So uh, let's get on into it here. It is Cable, Volume 4, Number 9. It's a May 2021 cover date. we got three issues left after this one. Stories called Bargaining, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto. Led is VC's Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sapolsky, cover price $3.99 American. This went on sale March 24 of 2021. And this has a pretty fun cover to it. This has uh, Cable and uh, his chosen cuckoo uh, sharing a drink, probably at the Green Lagoon, out of a sentinel head-shaped cup or mug. It's a nice cover, really, really cool. Now we open... With uh, one of those mostly blank quote pages, as we've been accustomed to with the uh, these X books here. But this one 
is uh, actually a little bit heartbreaking here, and it actually speaks speaks to what might be yet to come for this volume as it uh, winds down its pages. Now, it's from an anonymous patron at the Green Lagoon, and this person says that, you know, everybody used to be scared of old man cable, but nobody's scared of the kid. So kind of the story of Kid Cable's short life so far, isn't it? Now, our story proper opens on board an AIM submarine. Now, this is a submarine that's drifted a tad too close to Krakoa, and by a tad too close, we mean less than 100 meters away, which, yeah, it's pretty darn close, isn't it? Seems like this sort of thing is happening a lot in the X-Books, isn't it? Uh, maybe it's just the two times that I'm thinking of off the top of my head, but, uh, I don't know, it just seems, uh... Timing's weird, because, I mean, we just had Quentin and his cuckoo investigate that cruise ship, and now we've got Cable and his cuckoo taking care of this, you know, aim submarine matter. Now, the thing here is, Cable and Esme Cuckoo have somehow gotten into the sub and into a pair of aim beekeeper outfits. They cram the actual aim beekeepers into a torpedo chute and fire them into the drink. Our heroes then head to the surface so they can make out a bit in front of Emma and Scott, now, Emma kind of sighs it off. She seems annoyed at the fact that they are uh, making some time together here, despite the fact that earlier in this very volume, Emma herself told Scott that Esme needed to have her heart broken. So, well, who knows? Now, Scott saunters up and comments how those beekeepers were lucky it was them who took care of this matter rather than Magneto. Not entirely sure what he's implying here. I mean, Magneto still has to abide by that kill-no-man law. Uh, maybe he should have said, better us than X-Force? Anyway, it looks like the AIM submarine was armed with a nuke, which Esme and Nate disabled. Cable then pulls Emma off to the side to speak with her for a moment about a favor that he'd asked her for. Now, of course, he is still looking for Strife. And Emma and the rest of the cuckoos tried to track Strife down, but couldn't. Now, Emma takes Cable asking her for this favor as a sign that he'd like to keep this as mum as possible. Otherwise, I mean, why wouldn't he have just asked Jean for the assist, right? It seems like he's not too concerned with keeping this quiet so much as he's just not wanting to include Scott and Jean for, uh, well, obvious reasons. Cable goes to leave in order to resume his search and asks Emma to make an excuse for his absence to Esme. Esme watches as Nate swims off, and Emma, after the tactful clone mama, tells her that looks like the boy would rather throw himself in the ocean than be with her right now, which is ice cold, but uh, definitely in character. From here, we hop over to the double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters today include Cable, Esme Cuckoo, Emma Frost, Cyclops, Wolverine, Rachel Summers, Magic, Wildside, and Hope Summers. And we pick back up in... Oh, come on, Madripoor again? Okay, well, here, Cable is going to attempt to ask Wolverine for some help in this search for Strife. Now, he brings up the fact that Wolverine still owes him a marker from their bout in the quarry, which Cable won all the way back in issue one, which, I mean, do I even need to say that there's no editorial footnote to point us there? I mean, we're all smart people, though, so we know. Anyway... Speaking of smart people, let's take a look at the opposite. Now, we've got Kid Cable, and he sees Wolverine in his patch getup sitting at a bar. Rather than, you know, just observing to see what Wolverine might be up to, well, our boy just plops down beside him and refers to him out loud as Logan, which sort of, kind of, 100% tosses a monkey wrench into whatever plan Wolvie was working on here. Now, we did overhear a little bit of a conversation that Patch was having with a Madriporian about someone blackmailing the royal family. 
I'm not sure if this is anything we need to pay any mind to Or just a fairly, like, boilerplate sort of thing That Logan, as Patch, might be looking into In order to justify this scene occurring Anyway, since his cover's been blown Wolverine has to fight his way out of the bar He tells Kid Cable that he's got no problem helping him He just doesn't have time right now Plus, uh, at this point he doesn't think the kid is far enough along in the process To require Logan's particular skill set From here, we hop to the Boneyard, where Cable is approaching his sister of sorts, Rachel. Now, she scans for Strife, but cannot find him. She posits that he's either got some really, really strong PSI shields, or psi shields, if you will, or he's off-planet. That stands to reason that he'd have better-than-decent shields, since, well, he is a clone of Cable. Nate kicks himself for not ensuring that Strife had been completely taken off the board, as first he thought he'd killed him, then he thought he'd at the very least mind-wiped him. Turns out, neither of these were true. Now, I'm going to assume that this was the story from the previous volume of X-Force, but as I haven't read it, I can't swear to it. Um, it feels like this series, the one we're currently reading to this point, has been trying like, not to mention the previous Kid Cable and Strife run-ins, but here we are. Rachel tells him about another time in X-History where babies were being swiped. Now, this is a reference to Inferno, of course, and so she suggests that Cable head over to the Academos habitat to chat up Face. No, no, I'm just kidding. Nobody ever needs to talk to Face. Uh, she suggests that he speak to magics, and she might know a thing or two about, you know, the demons and whatnot, and baby napping, and we'll get there. And so, Cable does just that. We see magic in the middle of a training session with some young mutants in hand-to-hand combat. She unsurprisingly wipes the floor with them. You know, and I actually like this here because it's playing up what's going on right now in New Mutants with the, uh, you know, the old New Muse training the new New Muse. This is, uh, this is good stuff. Now, Ilyana takes Nate into limbo so he can chat up, oh boy, I'm going to have to pronounce this, Nastir? Nastir? Uh, the demon who was kidnapping babies back in Inferno. Now, she's got him chained up in a cave where he's been subject to horrible torture for the past hundred years, and I'm, I'm sure that's limbo time, hundred years. And so Cable asks... Nastir, Nastir, uh, about Strife and the babies, and the demon is unfortunately of very little help. All he says is, uh, you know, I'll tell you whatever you want if you can get me out of these chains, which, yeah, that really isn't much of a help at all when you're actually looking for something. And so, slump-shouldered Cable walks away. From here, though, we actually get to see the torture in action, and <laughs> it's, it's actually, you know, kind of a hoot. We got a bunch of little demons, and they pull out their recorders. I mean, you know, those fake-ass flutes that they made us play back in the elementary school? Where you'd play, like, the, the, the B-A-G, the, the bag lady one, the B-A-G? Um, those. That's what they got. So they start tooting on their recorders here, while one begins to sing that Proclaimer song about walking a thousand miles. And okay, this is, this is very funny here. And I mean, Duggan is a funny dude, but this feels like Zeb Wells-level comedy here. Really, really good stuff here. It's not often that I actually, you know, smirk, let alone laugh out loud uh, reading one of these things. But this scene certainly got me here. Very, very fun stuff. From here, Magic drops Cable back off on Krakoa so he can try maybe pursuing another lead in the search for strife here. And uh, this time he's going to go chat up former MLF member Wildside. Now, we last saw him as part of the Cosmar storyline over in New Mutants. And now Wildside is, uh, he's not being very cooperative here, and he's even going as far as to give Cable a little bit of sass when asked for help. 
Which, I suppose, in fairness, Cable doesn't so much ask for his help. He kind of just demands answers here. Now, after Wildside suggests that perhaps Kid Cable actually is Strife, they tussle for a bit. Amid the fracas, Wildside asks why Strife wouldn't be welcome on Krakoa, considering that it is for all mutants. And so I guess he's not exactly up to speed on the whole clone and dupe rules. Cable then cracks Wildside's back on a rock and proceeds to pummel him about, about the head and shoulders. He is then zapped with a bit of psychic energy. Then stood before him is, well, look at that, Hope Summers. And I gotta ask, is this the first time we're seeing Hope and Kid Cable share some meaningful panel space? It might not be. Uh, Remember, I haven't read X-Force Volume 5 yet, but this is definitely the first time that I'm seeing it. And it's a uh, pretty awkward conversation, as you well know it probably ought to be. For those unaware, Old Man Cable actually raised Hope from babyhood to young adulthood during Cable Volume 2. Now, in that series, he and Baby Hope would jump through time to keep one step ahead of Bishop, because Bishop had kind of lost his stuff. He'd flipped out around then and believed that he was prophesied to kill Hope. You know, he saw Hope as not so much the mutant messiah, but like the mutant antichrist, and he saw it as his, I don't know, sacred duty or just his prophecy duty to take Hope out. And we did talk a little bit about this in uh, the X-Men the Exterminated episode over during X-Labs the Nation, and uh, that was a pretty big letdown of a scene, if I remember right, and I hardly do. Anyway, like I said, this is Hope chatting with the younger version of her adoptive father, and also the guy who, well, you know, killed her adoptive father. The kid says he regrets that, and he considers it his biggest mistake. He mentions that he's uh, been kind of on his heels since X of Tens, which is true. He's not doing so hot, is he? I mean, he drew the full card from uh, Saturnine's tarot deck, and he totally took it at face value. He didn't think it through. He didn't think of the other angles that the full card might suggest. He just saw himself as the fool. He also showed weakness, which cost him the bout with Bay the Blood Moon during a... Uh, one of the final chapters, maybe the penultimate chapter of X of Tens. Uh, he was also corrupted by Null for the King in Black bit. He was, uh, and as a Knable, he was defeated fairly easily by Manifold. So not a great streak for a fellow who opened this volume by besting Wolverine in one-on-one combat. Anyway, he makes a plea to Hope. He suggests that in order to track down Strife, they're going to have to have the other guy... In, in other words, the old man Cable, back. Hope cautions him about Krakoa's dupe rule, but Nate is steadfast. He suggests that the old man is out there somewhere, and that they're going to need him to, f- to defeat Strife. So uh, this doesn't seem to be like a resurrection request, more of a, hey, how about we go hop through time and find the old man sort of request. Which... I mean, in hindsight, has been alluded to since the very first issue of this series, so uh, I gotta say, very, very well done. We wrap up the issue with an info page, and it's a memo regarding duplicates. Now, it was decided that duplicates, with few exceptions, would undermine the validity of the resurrection protocols. And this has been extended to include alternate dimension versions of our characters, as well as time travelers. And I tell you, that's a pretty that's some pretty good information to have here. Uh, so if I'm receiving this right, and I very well may not be, it doesn't exactly ban such a thing from occurring. Like, 
I mean, how could you stop an alternate version of any character or a time traveler from just showing up, right? You, you just can't. That's just something that would happen to you. But you can choose to exclude them from the resurrection proceedings should they perish, which I think is going to be the gimmick moving on here. Now, there are some exceptions to this rule listed, and uh, they include the Stepford Cuckoos, as uh, their existence is viewed as an, quote, extension of Emma Frost's mutant gifts, which, I don't know, but I guess that's one way of justifying it. Um, also, Madrox Prime can be brought back if he were to die and a dupe of his were to survive, which, I mean, that's fair enough. Anyway, that's where we leave this issue for today. Uh, next episode, it's, uh, well, it's Excalibur Day, so... Uh, We'll we'll worry about that next time But uh, for now, let's talk about this issue of Cable here Because we do get some really interesting information here Um, I think if the solicits and the upcoming covers are any indication The the old man is coming back, right? Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is uh, Which one's the dupe, right? Which one will be the dupe? We know that the, uh, the Quiet Council and Krakoa, they frown on having duplicates around, of course. Uh, this isn't Old Man Cable being resurrected. This is him being plucked somewhere out of the time stream. A, just a future version of the kid we've got now with more experience, more ability, um, just more of an, maybe more of an understanding of how strife works. So what do we do from here is my question. Um... Does Krakoa or the Quiet Council or, you know, whoever is in charge of this thing, do they just wait for the first one of these two to die and then just not bring that one back? Like, if we have Old Man Cable come back and then in this battle with Strife, Kid Cable gets killed, do we just say, okay, well, we already have one. We're fine now. We don't need to do anything. Uh, Do we don't need to uh, bring the kid back because we have a Cable? I mean, it's very, very interesting, and it actually um, introduces some form of stakes into this volume here. I mean, that's one of the things we've talked about a lot since the very beginning, is that a lot of these stories don't feel like they have any stakes, because if you die, you come back. And then when they when they introduce some stakes into X of Tens, it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, that's something that is going to have to be worried about. That's going to be something that's kind of hanging over our heads here. If they die in the wrong place, what might happen to them? Uh, How do they come back? Do they come back? But here, I mean, it's pretty much written out in black and white here. Uh, They only want one of each. And very soon it looks like we're going to have two. Now, if I were a betting man, and I've said it time and again, I'm not. (laughs) Um, I really, I don't know what I would bet on here. Um, Either we do bring Old Man Cable back... And Old Man Cable is the one that dies, right? And this only gives the younger Cable a, a measure of confidence, right? He, he stepped out of the shadow of the Old Man Cable. He was able to survive where the Old Man couldn't. And uh, this isn't just him, you know, jumping him and shooting him like, like what happened in Extermination, but this is more of an even playing field here. So if the kid is able to succeed where the Old Man fails, that can certainly build into the maturation of uh, of Kid Cable here um, coming into his own and I mean it's like uh, to use like a a reference from uh, professional wrestling here you have guys who go on losing streaks right and then their their win means much more at least in theory because usually they drag these things on too long and by the time they get the win you're already over it but in this situation we've had we got Kid Cable just getting hammered right he started this series out very very strong he beat Wolverine not many people can say that then. 
well, he started racking up L's, right? He was losing a lot. So it might stand to reason that we wrap up this volume with him getting a win and him coming to terms with the fact that he's not perfect, but he's good enough, right? And that he won't be defined by every win or every loss. It's just a a maturation process. So that's one option we have here. And again, this is making a lot of assumptions that we are headed down this direction where we're going to have two cables on the board. The other option is Kid Cable dies. And we have the old man again, and everybody who was turned off by having the kid version of Cable will just come scurrying back to the Xbox because the one that they recognize is back in the uh, is back in the pouches. But uh, I think the question we need to ask ourselves here is... Are these the same guy anymore? I mean, genetically, DNA-wise, body makeup, sure. We know they're the same guy. They're the same guy at different points in their lives. But they have different experiences now. They have a whole different uh, outlooks on lives on their lives. They, I mean, would we consider them more different or more alike at this point? The old man and the kid. Do they... Are they different enough to justify having them both? And I mean, that's a question that I remember asking back in the day where, uh, right before DC Rebirth, about right between, what was it, uh, Convergence and uh, DC Rebirth, they launched that uh, Superman, Lois, and Clark book here, which brought the the post-crisis Superman into the New 52 universe. And then we had to figure out which one we were going to keep. Because this, you know, isn't pre-crisis here. We not we can't have all these characters going around. I'm, you know, I mean that's laughable to say because I'm, you know, it's been changed a lot. But at this point in time, it was about bringing things back to a semblance of normalcy and familiarity. And so they had to get rid of one of them, and they got rid of the new one. Which, had I gone into it cold, I would have been just like a hundred percent for. You know, it's like, okay, give me my guy back. Get rid of this faker. Get rid of this uh, pretender in a, in Exodus parlance here. Get rid of this uh, New 52 version. And uh, in the lead-up to the New 52 Superman's death, he actually became a character that I felt was worth following and worth reading here. I felt that there were more things about him that were different than the you know prime Superman, that he could exist. He didn't need to necessarily die. Of course, I mean, I don't have any sort of say in anything here. I just, uh, I felt bad that they were they were taking this character off the board here. And I'm having very similar pangs right now with the possibility that Kid Cable, a character who I came into this not wanting, you know, I did not want this. And here we are, and I've enjoyed so many of the stories he's been a part of post-Fallen Angels. And here I am, uh, actually a little worried and a little upset that uh, we might be losing this uh, this new character, this kid Cable. It's a uh, such a weird spot to be, and I never thought I would. Uh, I never thought I would think this way, but uh, I think uh, Jerry Duggan has done just a bang up job with this character over the course of the past year plus, and it's uh, it's just been a real treat. Again, though, these are all hot takes here. I don't have any any sort of insider knowledge. I barely have uh, any knowledge. Period. So I couldn't tell you which way this is going to go. It's just my, uh, you know, my spidey sense is pinging a little bit. Now let's talk a little bit about the Time Traveler Resurrection ban here, because we got to make some assumptions here. We have to assume that this is limited to those who have a current-day counterpart, right? Because not too long ago, just a handful of episodes ago, we saw in X-Factor, Rachel... 
a time traveler was killed and came back, you know, a page or two later. And I gotta figure that that's because there is no Rachel in the present day 616 Marvel Universe, right? So say if Bishop were to die, um, he could be brought back then because there is no 616 current day counterpart for him. And again, I, I'm just spitballing here because I'm, we did just see Rachel come back. And uh, this edict that we just read on this info page would say that, uh, that you wouldn't bring her back. You wouldn't bring back a time traveler. But uh, I gotta assume it's all about how many of each character they have here. Whereas Old Man Cable, whose, whose body we have seen not too long ago, we saw it uh, somewhat recently, it was built into Deadpool's uh, pool table uh, over on Staten Island. He can't be resurrected because there currently is a present-day version of himself running around, which another thing that popped into my mind here is maybe there is a third option for how this can go, or third or fourth option, I suppose, uh, depending on which which direction we lean in here, um, where neither Cable has to die necessarily, but they could just leave, you know? Not just leave Krakoa, but leave now, right? We could have this big knockdown drag out between the cables and the strifes, and uh, that could wrap up with our young kid cable realizing that he's got a lot to learn still. And so maybe he goes to travel through time to get uh, seasoned, right? Because, you know, I'm thinking if they are the same character from the same timeline, from the same universe, if kid cable dies, then, and I mean, time travel's such a headache, but, uh, there is a school of thought that should Kid Cable die, Old Man Cable will vanish. And I don't know if they'll be able to work around that, or if that's just something we won't mention, but, I mean, that is uh, certainly a possibility. So maybe Kid Cable just decides that he's going to start traveling through time, or the other way around. Maybe Old Man Cable's like, hey, you know, I was happy to give you a hand, but I got stuff to do elsewhere in the timeline, and he's just out there. And he could come back at any point, uh, or maybe he won't. I don't know, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing where this goes here, because uh, this, this is a book that's asking a lot, of those, uh, a lot of those tough questions, and it's actually giving us a little bit of information that we've been uh, very, very curious about. Finally, uh, the art. I mean, do I need to say anything about Phil Noto's art here? It's uh, very, very wonderful stuff here. I, I will miss Phil Noto as much as I miss anything in this book because he nails it every time out. It's wonderful, wonderful art. Um, but that's basically all I got to say about this issue. Uh, if you agree or disagree, I uh, beg you to let me know. Please think about reaching out if you have a moment. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men on Facebook. 90s X-Men, no hyphen. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that is available anywhere you find noise and sound on the internet. And uh, if you like what you hear, it would make me so happy if you'd spread the word and share the show. It'd mean the world to me. But that will do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 189 of X Lapsed, and it is uh, it is Kota Day, C O T A, Children of the Atom Day. And uh, if you listen to the, my discussion of the first issue, you know that uh, well, I wasn't quite sure how to receive it. Um, and after reading the second issue, I don't know that my opinions changed all that much. Uh, how about we just hop on into it? Uh, this is Children of the Atom number two. And a June 2021 cover date, the story is called Prison Break, written by Vida Ayala, Art Bernard Chang, colors Marcelo Maiolo, letters VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Andrews Ballesteros, Robinson White Sabolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale April 14th of 2021. And you know, I don't often talk about covers, and I'm not really going to talk about this cover all that much either, but... Um, I swear, all of these Children of the Atom covers, they could, I mean, we could put them in a deck and shuffle them and put them on just about any cover. It's its all the same stuff. But anyway, let's get inside here. We open with one of the Hell's Bells making a phone call from prison. So, um, I guess we're still dealing with the Hell's Bells then. All right. Well, she's calling into another Hell's Bell to come break them out of the clink here, and uh, we'll talk about who that is in just a little bit. Meanwhile, however, we're at the Krakoan Embassy in New York City, where it looks like Mystique has been left in charge of the place, which doesn't seem like the uh, smartest thing to do, but I guess she is part of the Quiet Council, so stands to reason. Anyway, she is visited upon by the Avengers. Hmm. And you know, it's been a real long time since any, you know, I've seen any Avengers inject themselves into an X story, and even having said that, it's still kind of annoying to see them here. Now, here's the thing. We got Captain America, Iron Man, and a super scowly Captain Marvel here. They walk into the place and immediately demand to talk to Professor X, which, I mean, come on. They're here to discuss the Kota kids and how they're breaking Kamala's law. All right. Okay, so, hmm. Okay, the X-Men have been in their Krakoan era for, what, two years now, right? I mean, we've talked about almost 200 single issues of a comic book that have been in this era, so it's been it's been a little while. And it's because of the friggin' Coda kids that the Avengers are finally getting in the X-Men's faces? I mean, this is the big crisis? A bunch of dopey kids in X-Men cosplay having one public battle? You know, not too long ago, when we covered the most recent issue of Excalibur... I kind of, I said that it kind of, it's kind of up its own butt, right? And it's disconnected from the rest of the line. You know, all the X-Books have a story, while Excalibur only worries about Excalibur. Okay, the, the Excalibur threats trump everything else that's going on, and anybody who dares guest star in that book has to abide by that. The situation there was uh, Otherworld and Saturnine being the most dire threat in the world to the mutants here totally neglecting every other threat that they've faced 
since the Krakoan era started, including like the entire country of Russia wanting to co- wanted to come after them. Uh, somehow, Saturnine is uh, the worst threat ever. I, I don't know. So here, Children of the Atom kind of feels the same way, you know? The Children of the Atom are the top priority in the Marvel Universe. It's what's bringing Captain America to the Krakoan Embassy. I tell you, the Coda kids do not require this much attention at this point. They've had one public battle. Whatever the case, Storm shows up to put the Avengers in their place. It's worth noting that Storm is wearing her animated series costume here, which is bizarre. Um, Anyway, she and Captain America argue for a bit about these so-called young X-Men. And if I'm being honest, the whole thing feels pretty forced and, as mentioned, blown out of proportion. But hey, you know, at least we can say that the Avengers appear in the solicit. Maybe that'll get another another two buys on this book. Now, after Storm's like, hey, beat it, you know, the Avengers leave, then Storm talks to Mystique for a little bit. She asks her for a favor, though we don't get to find out exactly what that favor is just yet. And uh, we won't find out at any point in this issue, but uh, probably just something to put in the back of our minds for a bit. From here, we go to our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, and our characters are Cherub, Marvel Guy, Cyclops Lass, Gimmick, and Daycrawler. Then we go to an info page, and it's Gabriel's, or, or Cherub's, uh, You Must Be a Mutant to Have Abs Like That workout plan. It's a, it's a website, I'm assuming, because there are thumbs up on it. And indeed, this issue will be narrated completely by Gabe. Uh, the first issue was, uh, was all uh, Buddy, Cyclops Lass, and here... Looks like it's going to be Cherub giving us the uh, giving us the exposition. So we get into comics again, and we're at Gabe's place. And he narrates about stereotypes and appearances being deceiving. He suggests that when people look at him, all they see is a black boy from a broken home who plays basketball, but he'll have you know that he's much more than that. And the only people who have actually seen him as more than that are his Kota kin. And uh, if I'm being honest, they really overstate this here. Uh, After the first round of praise Gabe's narration heaps upon himself, we kind of get the point. But we still get, like, another page and a half of it. Anyway, he's here with his mother and his little sister, and they're talking about mutants. Gabe's mom suggests that there have been a lot of problems with mutants of late. uh, Which, I mean, has there been? Outside of the one battle that the Coda kids had with, uh... I mean, I don't know that... The world at large knows or cares about the Festival of Swords, do they? I don't know. Now, Gabe says he thinks the mutants are cool. And he knows for a fact that uh, his mom once did as well. You see, she used to be a really big Lila Cheney fan back in high school. Which begs the question, just how old is Lila Cheney supposed to be right now? Hmm. Gabe's mom jokingly, well... I think it's jokingly. The art is not completely clear here. She's either joking or she's furious. She tells her son that only God can judge her high school hairdo and music tastes. He kisses his family goodbye and heads off to the Dazzler concert. So hey, we're naming both the mutant songstresses in, uh, in one scene here. And so, let's shift scenes to the Dazzler concert. And you know what? I know it's been a crazy year in the real world, but how weird is it to see a group of people crammed into an enclosed space without masks? I mean, of course they couldn't, and and really shouldn't, run a COVID story at Marvel, you know, since the Krakoan magic meds would have made short work of it. But still, a scene like this is uh, pretty refreshingly weird. 
Uh, now, Gimmick thanks Gabe for spotting her the cash for her ticket and tells him that she'll pay him back after her next donation stream. And I call her Gimmick because I can't remember her real name, and, uh, I mean, come on, neither can you. Now, she's doing a donation stream because this is a thing that young people do, you see. They stream online in hopes that people will give them money. And I really wonder how she gets people to do this. I mean, we gotta assume that all the money she gets is going toward creating Kota costumes and whatnot. And I suppose some of that whatnot is uh, paying for tickets to Dazzler concerts. I don't know. Kids these days, am I right? Anyway, at the merch table, Gabe and the gang run into Cole, who was that kid from last issue who totally isn't actually a mutant, right? We basically get a repeat of everything we learned about him last issue. He was sick, near death, then he came back better than ever. The only new thing we learn about him is that he's a Dazzler fan. Now, this is due to Gabe showing him some Dazzler music videos while he was in the hospital. They part company with Cole telling the gang that he'll save them a spot inside. But then, Daycrawler, who must not be a Dazzler fan as he's not there with the, the rest of the crew here, and he's all also now going, or he's trying to go by the code name Nighty Nightcrawler, which might just be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Anyway, he sends a text message about some mutant mayhem going down with the Hell's Bells breaking out of jail. And so our Kota kids decide to ditch the concert and go play Hero. Info page. It's a one-night-only Dazzler concert poster at Webster Hall. Uh, Dazzler is in her original disco look in the poster, which uh, kind of reminds me of like when washed-up bands you still use pictures from when they were young to advertise their shows. Uh, a lot of uh, washed-up wrestlers will do the same thing. Uh, there's also a post-it note on this page from Benny thanking Gabe for the ticket and promising to pay him back. So, if we haven't made this clear yet, Gabe is a literal saint. Um, he doesn't just dress like Angel, he's literally an angel. So, lickety-split, our heroes bamf over to the prison. Gimmick is a bit off-balance and claims that she'll, quote, never get used to that teleporter. Which might suggest to us that Daycrawler slash Nighty Nightcrawler's bamfing might not be a mutant power, huh? Now they run into the Hell's Bells, and Cyclops Lass is super psyched to let Briquette know that she wrote an article about her on Mutants Unmuted. And uh, that's basically what I'm going to say if I ever run across the Morlock Bliss in real life, so I can't really hold that against her. Now Briquette, it's worth noting, is the only still-powered member of the Bells, so this will be the first time that the Coda kids are pitted against a whole mutant. And well, hmm, they don't, they don't fare all that well, do they? No, no, they sure don't. During the fight, the concept of Krakoan amnesty comes up. The Kota kids ask why the Bells haven't just gone to Krakoa. To which, one of the depowered Bells says that uh, they wouldn't go there in an incomplete state. Huh. Do I sense a crucible battle royal brewing? I sort of hope so. Briquette commends the kids on studying the Bells and knowing their routine, but... You know, like Mike Tyson once said, uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, which is pretty much what happens to the Coda team at this point. Evening Crawler then bamfs the kids away so they can collect themselves, but unfortunately and stupidly, he only ports them over like one room. Briquette bashes through the wall and continues to pummel the hell out of them. But then Storm shows up, along with some X-Men wallpaper, including Toad, Outlaw from Agent X, and Mercury. Storm is here to both tell the Bells to back off and to offer them Krakoan amnesty. Briquette isn't sure that this is legit, but decides to go along anyway. 
Storm then chats up the Coda kids, who all kind of squee when they, you know, notice that they're actually talking to a, such a high-profile ex-character. Storm offers them Krakoa as well, but again, they turn it down. She also mentions that Cerebro cannot scan them and suggests that maybe they're somehow blocking it from doing so. Not just, you know, Occam's razoring the thing and guessing that maybe these kids aren't actually mutants. I don't know. Hopefully she's just playing along. Storm then gives Cyclops Lass one of her X buttons, which I suppose is a communication device of sorts. As she, the wallpaper, and the bells leave via a temporary Krakoan gateway, she instills in the Kotas that uh, they're always willing to help them. And so, that brings us to the wrap-up where... Wait a minute. Haven't we already read this page? It's the Kota kids at Coney Island attempting to use the Krakoan gateway under the docks. (sighs) Is this just something the kids do every night? Hoping that one of these days they'll actually be mutants? I don't know. That's a question we'll have to answer another time because that is where we end it. Next episode, Wolverine finally remembers that there's a a vampire nation brewing. We haven't, uh, he hasn't attended to that since before X of Tens, if you can believe it. So, uh, I guess, uh, I guess his memory just isn't what uh, it used to be. Or maybe it's what it's always been, and it's uh, been a little Swiss cheesy. But we're going to get back to Vampire Nation for better or for worse next episode. But for now, well, let's talk about this issue. Um, Hmm. (laughs) Not my favorite. Uh, Certainly not my favorite here. Uh, I feel like we're two issues in and we're already into repeats. This is basically, I mean, it's almost like a point-by-point Retelling of the first issue I, I really don't know What more to say about it Other than the fact that we had a different narrator this time And I mean the narration here Kind of insisted upon itself As, as uh, pretentious as that might sound It was uh, very unsubtle um, Not terribly interesting And doesn't really make us feel like we I mean because what we're getting here Is very cliche stuff Um, What we learn about Gabe is that he is an overachiever who's viewed by people who don't know him and who don't take the time to get to know him. He's viewed in a certain way because of his upbringing, and uh, I mean, that really sucks, right? But uh, the lengths we went to um, dispel uh, the stereotype here made it feel like we were protesting a little bit too much. Uh, you could tell me that he's got good grades, that he that he takes care of his family. That's all I really need to know. I don't need to know everything, you know. And if you are going to tell me more than that, make it make it interesting uh, instead of uh, exactly what we expect it to be from that point on. So I don't feel like we know Gabe any more than than we did last issue. I mean, all we do know is that his mother was a uh, was a Lila Cheney fan, and that Lila Cheney must be in like her mid to late fifties at this point. Yeah, despite. Not really looking like it, and also despite having dated Cannonball while he was like 16 or 17, which is kind of kind of icky, isn't it? Now, the main difference between the fight with the Hell's Bells this issue and the fight with the Hell's Bells last issue is that this time they came packing some actual steel-powered mutant heat, and uh, the Coda kids could not keep up with Briquette, um, which... I mean, that does show us something, right? That shows us that they might be capable of taking down depowered mutants, or, I guess, regular old humans. But when it comes to an actual super-powered, meta-powered character, they're, uh, they're, at, they're at a severe disadvantage. Uh, not only... I mean, I don't know how, how certain we are that these kids don't have any powers. I'm 
pretty sure that they don't, which uh, puts them at a disadvantage in that way. And they're also just not experienced in superheroics and fighting and battling. So, I mean, they've got they've already got two strikes against them if they're ever pitted against a uh, real threat. But even so, um, it's not like they caused a whole lot more collateral damage than say, the Avengers or the X-Men, if there were X-Men right now, any other superhero team. They didn't really cause any any more damage than any other team. There were no casualties. So that brings us to the beginning of the issue where Captain America and company are there kind of uh, read and storm the Riot Act about getting these kids under control. It feels like... I don't know, in fairness, in fairness, Captain America says that he doesn't believe in Kamala's law and is not really happy about having to enforce it, which... I mean, I can get into that being a huge problem that I have with Marvel Comics now as it is, that the Avengers actually have to answer to people rather than just being superheroes. It's all about uh, answering to, is Maria Hill still a thing? Is she still around? I haven't I haven't seen her in a while, but that doesn't mean anything. But post-Civil War, it feels like every time the Avengers want to as much as have a bowel movement, they need to check with someone in S.H.I.E.L.D. to get clearance. So... That's something I really can't stand about the uh, about the comics now, but it is what it is. So, in fairness to the Avengers, Captain America says, you know, I don't believe in Kamala's law. It's just that we're stuck having to enforce it. I don't want to enforce it, but it's kind of out of their hands at this point. Um, I do have a question about Krakoan amnesty or immunity or whatever they're calling it here. Um, could Storm or any representative of Krakoa, in theory... Could they, I mean, under the assumption here that these uh, Children of the Atom characters are at least perceived to be mutants, since they are dressing the part, um, could a Storm, could a Mystique, could anybody just be like, oh yeah, we're calling Amnesty every time they get, they get you know, arrested for Kamala's Law? Or as, uh, as perceived mutants who aren't living on Krakoa, do, does Krakoan Amnesty extend to them? So, like, can they work... Out in the open, and if uh, the police come, they just shine their badge that hey, we're we're the we're with the X Men, you know, and uh, they can't be arrested because they're they don't answer to human law. I I really don't know, and unfortunately at this point, I'm not all that invested in finding out. You know, uh, this felt way way too similar to uh, to the first issue, which I mean, th- this is nine dollars worth of comics here. You know, these two issues, and I suppose it really won't matter when the trades come out. You know, they're not worried about us week-to-week, month-to-month people anymore, are they? So I guess we'll just uh, learn to like the taste of whatever this is and uh, let the trade waiters uh, reap the rewards of uh, not supporting these books when they came out. So I don't know that I have much more to say about this issue. Um, uh, I'm Overall, I'm, I'm fairly disappointed in it, and it's unfortunate if you agree or disagree, I would uh, I would love to hear from you. So please uh, consider reaching out if that is the case. But uh, let's hop into the mailbag here before we uh, we cut out. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X Men number seventeen. He says, "I did not enjoy this comic." Now this is the issue where we had uh, we had Gene and Scott in their X Factor outfits, and Storm was there, and uh, Deathbird had called them in because there was a traitor and. Yeah, it was that issue. And Damien continues, I'm beginning to dread whatever it is they have planned for Storm. There have been constant hints that she'll be leaving Krakoa, and now we have the head of the Shi'ar offering her a boon. Hickman's gonna send her into space, isn't he? He really can't help himself. 
It wouldn't surprise me. Um, I hate to say it, but it would not surprise me if after the Hellfire Gala, um, we do send Storm into space here. I don't know what's happening with Planet Size X-Men. Um, the solicit gives us the impression that it's going to have something to do with space, right? Um, I, I'm not looking forward to more space stuff. You guys know me. I'm not a fan of that, uh, that tact of, uh, X-Men storytelling, but... I could definitely see them uh, sending Storm, sending Storm out. Frankly, if uh, she is leaving Krakoa, there's only a handful of places that she can go, right? It's either she might go to Wakanda to, uh, you know, follow up on damaging that sword from Exitens. She might go to Madripoor because that's where everybody goes. Uh, she might go to Otherworld um, because why not? She may go to space or, I mean... There's one place that we haven't really talked about since X of Tens ended, really, right? Uh, Arako. I wonder if she'll head to Arako to try to smooth things over. Or maybe she'll go to Arako, and then Arako will wind up being jettisoned into space, and, and we'll all be right. It, I mean, at this point, I mean, uh, not much would surprise me. Damien continues, so let's just pretend this story never happened. Fans can collectively overrule continuity whenever we want just by ignoring it. If I can do it for the Dibneys at DC, I can do it to protect my favorite X-Man. <laughs> oh, the poor Dibneys, huh? Oh, man. I think that was one of the very first times I got uh, really ticked off at, like, the apparent carte blanche that a comic company would give to one creator, especially one that was just slumming it in comics in uh, Brad Meltzer. It really shows the inferiority complex that comics has, where if you... Uh, you know, if you will slum it in comics, you, you could basically do whatever the hell you want, you know? We've got people who spend their entire lives working in comics who can't get stories, you know, greenlit and have things uh, thrown back at them by editors. But, uh, oh, you, you, you scripted one TV show? Or, oh, you wrote a book? Yeah, you want to kill some of our characters? You want to destroy some of our lore? Yeah, have at it. Have at it. Ugh, garbage. Um, anyway, <laughs> Damien wraps up with... Anyway, until Chris decides to pretend I don't exist, make my next last. Well, that will never, ever happen, Damien. So thank you so, so much for writing in. Next up, we got Evan talking about Excalibur number 18. He says, I'm surprised you didn't try to get hashtag close the gate trending when Emma suggested shutting down the other world gate. I thought about it. I, I hope I, you know, if they want to do an X-Men vote, that should be our X-Men vote, right? Then again, I mean... I mean, my voting record in X-Men elections is not the best. So for all I know, um, for all I know, I would just be damning us to uh, every issue being another world, which isn't, I guess it isn't really different from what we have now. It's funny, I was thinking about the, the you know, ec- the current X-Men election here where we got Polaris added to the Volume 6 team. And over in the Facebook group, uh, Jesse had shared with us a cover for an upcoming issue of Marauders where Tempo and Banshee are on it. And I'm thinking, like, I, I don't know if it's just the cynic in me, um, but it's like, huh, you know, uh, they're here. They were in the, the running for the, uh, for the election, but uh, I don't know, maybe it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe Marvel already knew who they wanted in the, uh, in the uh, Volume 6 team and just gave us the illusion that we were controlling things. Maybe, I, I don't know. I, I am a cynic, so <laughs> that could just be uh, me projecting. Now, uh, Evan continues. Aside from the chuckle I got out of that, I did enjoy this issue. 
I didn't feel like I'd missed anything, although some more evidence of Betsy acting strange would have been welcome. I don't remember her and Rogue being close in anything I read, but her concern comes across as genuine. Otherwise, I like the team having a reason for doing what they're doing, as opposed to traipsing through Otherworld for reasons I can't understand. Now, you raise a good point there, and I think I've mentioned this a time or two during our Excalibur conversations here. They're, they want us to think that Rogue and Betsy are, like, super tight. And though they've been on, you know, the same team for many years now, I don't know that we've ever seen them, like, bond. Not to say that they didn't. I mean, this is a Teeny Howard book, and so we know a lot of the story takes place off-panel, so I guess we could just assume that that's the case, but it does feel a little bit artificial. Despite the fact that Rogue's uh, concern did feel real, their entire relationship feels a little, little forced and a little artificial. Evan continues, King Jamie the Weird's discovery of the missing clone body was funny. Are we, at assu- are we to assume Quanan from another canon, pronounced Kanan, has inhabited the spare Betsy? I don't know if you realize this, but it wouldn't be the first time those two swapped bodies. You know, I, that would really help us out if they would, uh, if they would leave footnotes to that. They would tell us that every once in a while, that Betsy and Quanan were either sharing bodies or swap bodies, because... I mean, I feel like we never, ever, ever hear about that. <clears throat> but I, but I digress. Uh, now, thank you so much for writing in, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, now, before we cut out of here, we do have a short fake-ass comics history segment here. Uh, now, last episode when we talked about Runaways, we skipped it because there just wasn't any, there wasn't any obscure character to uh, take a look at. It was just uh, the Runaways and Wolverine and Pixie, and I think we uh, we know them pretty well. So for today's F-A-C-H, we're going to take a look at Hell's Bells. Now, their first appearance was X-Factor number 80, July 1992 cover date, created by Peter David and Larry Stroman. And this is going to be an easy one. Now, the, Hell Bell- the Hell's Bells were a quintet of female terrorists assembled by Cyber. Yeah, that's Cyber. The one who first appeared in Marvel Comics Presents in late 1991, who uh, Walt and I have uh, spoken quite a bit about. During our segment in From Claremont to Claremont Now the bells are Briquette, with the power of Thermokinesis and superhuman strength Flambe, who is basically Pyro, he's got Pyro's powers Ability to control flame but not actually Manifest it Tremolo, which I'm almost certainly Pronouncing wrong She could shoot energy blasts and create vibrational Waves, Vague could turn Invisible and also fly And Shrew, who could transform Now their whole story Kind of starts here because Shrew would get caught by authorities And threaten to testify like Ghost State's evidence Against the rest of the Bells in exchange for immunity Now this led to the government-sponsored version of X-Factor To have to protect Shrew from her old running buddies and boss The Bells and Cyber would strike and attempt to silence their former partner Though, I mean, hmm They're villains, right? I mean, that's clear They're bad guys So what does it really matter if Shrew spilled the beans on the fact that the bad guys are bad? Hmm, I don't know. Whatever the case, X-Factor would defeat them and uh, have them arrested. Shrew would even cause Cyber to fall into the path of a moving train, though he would survive. We wouldn't see nor hear anything from the Bells again until post-Decimation, post-M-Day. Here it was revealed that all the Bells besides Burkett were depowered by the Scarlet Witch. Though we haven't seen Shrew since 1992, so, I mean, who knows? She, she was not listed among the 198, so we can assume that uh, there's no powers there, or maybe she passed, I don't know. 
A vague tremolo and flambe would be cited as having been depowered in New Avengers number 18, which had a June 2006 cover date. Briquette would later join a support group started by Nightcrawler called Mindfulness for Mutant Appearances. Now, this was in Domino Annual number 1, November 2018 cover date. Now, this was a group for mutants who could not pass as normal humans. And here, Briquette is uh, depicted as being somewhat sympathetic. And that's it. That brings us to the present. So the Bells, in sum, if we were to take their individual appearances and their team appearances, they've appeared in less than ten comics. So, easy peasy. But now we know more about the Hell's Bells than uh, we ever realized we didn't care to know. So there's that. But that is where we will leave it for today. If you'd like to write in and join the show, please feel free to do so. You could find me several different ways. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Blog posts and show notes are at chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can talk to us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please feel free to uh, share the show, spread the word. It would really, really mean a lot to me. But that is where we'll leave it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 196 of X-Last, where uh, we are officially in the home stretch to the Milestone 200th episode. Uh, if I am not hit by a truck, bus, and or lightning, <laughs> the, it should be coming out at the end of this week. So, uh, yeah, we're in that uh, episode 200 corridor. It's pretty wild. Now, today... Speaking of wild, we have an issue of X-Force to talk about. This is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 19, which had a June 2021 cover date. 
Story's called Dead of Nightmare, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Gary Brown. Colors, Guru EFX, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Amaro Basso, White Sabolski, cover price four bucks, and this one on sale April 21 of 2021. And we open at the Summer House on the Moon, where Scott and Jean are in bed together. Must be Scott's night. Uh, it's weird that he'd be wasting it sleeping. Um, now, Jean can't fall asleep, and she keeps dwelling on something she saw earlier, which I feel like it's been forever since we covered an issue of X-Force here, so I don't remember for the life of me um, if this is something we actually witnessed in the past couple of issues here. I think we can probably assume this has something to do with Quentin Quire. It's worth noting, Scott's wearing what looks like a ruby quartz sleep mask, which I think is really, really cool. Just then, Quentin's cuckoo calls out to Jean for some psychic assistance. Now, this is something I do remember. At the end of last issue, Quentin was astral planning, or whatever, in the uh, Xeno lab, and uh, kind of got attacked and kind of got stuck there. So, how about we go there ourselves? Well, first, let's do the double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred here. We got some characters to focus on. We got Black Tom, Sage, Jean Grey, Kid Omega, Phoebe Cuckoo, and Domino. Alright, back to comics, and we are back to Quentin's quest. Now, he's walking among the fluid-filled containers at Xeno, and the Nightmare version of himself appears to be hot on his trail. Now, the gimmick here, as far as I can tell, is that Quentin, Quentin seems to understand that the evil doppelganger was a creation of Xeno. But, he's still kind of projecting everything that he hates about himself onto it. Kind of makes, makes sense, right? Well, he gets slashed by the baddie and tries to manifest some weaponry to fight back, only he can't seem to get anything to keep its form. So he'll make like a giant gun, like a big life Feldian Mark 69 gun, and it'll like melt in his hands, you know? So he's just not in the right headspace for this fight. And he worries that he's maybe sabotaging himself, which, I mean, that's fairly introspective for a character like Quentin. Now, he runs past more canisters. One of them has all the cuckoos in it, and they're mocking him for being scared of himself. Others have bits and pieces of X-Men in them. Nightcrawler's tail, Beast's arm, Professor X and Cyclops' heads, and they're all commenting on how many times Quentin's died. When will it ever be enough for Quentin to keep dying? So QQ continues to run until he happens upon an open door. And Jean Grey is there with her hand extended. Now, Quentin stops, and he wonders, like... You know, he was sure that all the things that he's seeing here, despite the fact that it was haunting him so much, he was sure a lot of that was mind tricks, right? Just his own mind projecting these, you know, his own fears, his insecurities, and kind of giving them astral plane flesh in the cuckoos and, and some of the folks on the island. So he's wondering, stands to reason that he'd wonder, is this the real Jean Grey, or is this a real Jean Grey? Now, Jean tells him to cast his doubts aside and just trust her, and so he does. And right away, we pop back to reality with Quentin coming to atop the Sunset Cliffs. Now, worth noting, he's got a major gash on his back from his astral plane experience when, you know, the evil version swiped at him. But the good news is he thinks he knows the real-world location of his evil version. He manifests a jetpack and grabs Phoebe in his arms and then tells Jean that, uh, well, I know you're not in the X-Force game anymore, but whether you like it or not, eh, you're going to have to help us out because Beast is dead and X-Force needs an interim leader. Now, we saw Beast die, I believe, last issue here. He was fighting off the evil Quentin and wound up putting himself into a stroke. And since his mind was uh, 
monopolized, I guess, or uh, in jeopardy, uh, he and Sage had an unspoken truce or an unspoken to us sort of agreement where uh, if one of them was ever in an adult uh, way, uh, the other one would kill them. So that's exactly what happened last issue. Sage killed Beast. I think it was his first ever death, if I'm not mistaken. So kind of underwhelming for such a thing, but I mean, these are the times we're living in now. Anyway, Jean doesn't argue with the fact that, you know, she's going to have to be in charge here. And she even goes as far as to comment on how mature Quentin sounds compared to before. Now, he assures her that he can start getting nasty again if she'd prefer it. And Phoebe tells Jean that Quentin's just trying something new right now and eh, he probably needs all the support he can get. So let's just, uh, let's just let him be a kinder, gentler Quentin choir. A little later, we're at the point where, uh, the trio are filling in Sage on some of what Quentin learned during his astral planing. Now, he noticed that there were Type K outlets at the lab, which are unique to Denmark, Greenland, and the Faroe Islands. Hey, the Faroe Islands. I remember we, we cared about them for a minute. Now, Type Ks, if you're not aware, are those, like, adorable-looking sockets that look like a winking face. You know, it's those. Uh, it's worth noting that there are several other countries that use Type Ks, but we'll just not worry about that right now. Quentin also was able to uh, notice that there were 60 gallons of formaldehyde that had been freshly shipped to this location, wherever it is. And so Sage does some collation here, and she matches this information to uh, a drop that was made in Nuuk, or Nuuk, N-U-U-K, the capital of Greenland, uh, specifically to a whale-flensing warehouse, basically where the blubber is taken from the bod, right? A butchery, which seems very much on brand for Zeno. Now, Sage learns that this factory was recently bought with cryptocurrency, and uh, I wonder if it was sold on the dark web, man. We know Percy loves his dark web. Uh, and the electric bill for this place is uh, 156,000 krone a month, which is just shy of 19,000 American dollars. We don't know the size of this place, we don't know the scope of this place, so that might not be quite the mind-blowing amount for electricity, as uh, we might be led to believe here. But we see a number like 156,000. That seems like a lot, so we'll let them have it. From here, we go to an info page, and it's another few paragraphs with a Russian signature at the bottom. Whoever this is is talking about Colossus painting again and actually selling his paintings. And I mean, we've been getting these cryptic pages like on and off for like 10 issues now. Can we just get on with it? I mean, it wasn't interesting the first time, and it's still not. Back to comics. Jean brings Quentin to a mental tide pool that they had built for occasions such as this. She mentions that they tried contacting the rest of X-Force to assist. Uh, Domino's on her way, but Black Tom and Wolverine didn't respond. Quentin wants to learn how to fight with his mind. You know, he talks about a time when he was a kid where there was someone bullying him and he, like, imagined this kid getting beaten up and then the next day the kid came in with, like, a missing tooth and a bloody nose and a, and a you know, bruised eye or something. So he wants to learn how to harness that sort of thing here, how to fight with his mind. Uh, Gene says that, uh, you know, I wouldn't have helped the old Quentin with this, but eh, this kinder, gentler one, uh, this more mature one, maybe, maybe I'll consider it. Now, Quentin Quire takes his glasses off and cracks them, symbolizing something, I guess. Uh, now, we do know that his glasses were basically just a fashion accessory at this point, because the five had given him perfect vision, like he'd requested in one of his, uh, you know, when-you-wake-me sort of notes there. He then manifests a pair of pink glasses that hover over his nose, so... I don't know. Uh, then, Phoebe and Quentin climb into the pool where the salt water content allows them to float, so... 
Bingo Bango, they're on the astral plane here. It's kind of like a uh, sensory deprivation sort of experience here. From, from, you know, that's what I'm seeing anyway. So they're there with Gene, and Gene describes this as a hidden hallway that connects to an unguessable number of rooms, a proverbial mental mansion. And she talks about how the doors to the rooms are more easily accessed when the mind is vulnerable. She tells them that they have access to a complete psychic arsenal, and Quentin, of course, chooses a chainsaw. Phoebe takes an EP, or a fencing foil. Then we go to an info page. And you know how Ben Percy will sometimes just cram whole scenes of dialogue into an info page rather than, you know, us just getting actual comic book pages? Yeah, it's more of that. It's Gene, Quentin, and uh, Phoebe talking. It's just, it looks like a script. I hate these. Anyway, later we're at Nuke Greenland, uh, and Gene and Domino are there. And you remember all that talk we've done about Domino being resurrected without her trauma? I mean, it's been one of the uh, one of the evergreen topics on this program. I mean, and it's also, at least to us, a major plot point, right? In the whole resurrection protocol, uh, you know, Michigas, right? Well, here Domino confirms that she knows her memories were edited, but somehow still remembers being in Zeno's lab. Don't know how that can be. Uh, Jean realizes that this will likely irritate the readers, and so she attempts to lampshade the entire thing by suggesting that uh, maybe it was just the anger that remained. And uh, Domino's like, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, Then she vows to go all mystique and burn the place to the ground. We go over to the astral plane, where Quentin and Phoebe are walking through that hallway, and they come upon a door with an omega symbol crudely scrawled on it. Now, he opens the door, and they both fall in, and we see them dangling from the door over just nothingness. Back at the point, we see Black Tom emerging from some foliage, and his eyes are just blood-red. He enters the, uh, you know, the sensory deprivation pool and goes to yank Phoebe out of the drink. Sage is there, and she kicks him in the mush, but the damage has been done. Phoebe's, you know, uh, psyche has been severed from the astral plane. She's vanished from the plane, so Quentin is all by his lonesome, and he is then nabbed by his evil version. Now, at the same time, Domino and Jean have already infiltrated the factory, and they find Quentin Quire, maybe the one that Mikhail Rasputin delivered to Zeno back before Ex of Swords, attached to some machinery and tubes and whatnot. Now, Quentin is still doing battle on the astral plane. He tells his dark version that, uh... He's already killed his worst parts, and so this'll be more symbolic than anything. He then manifests a gun and blows the doppel's brains out, which kills the version at the Xeno Lab, and that's where we leave it. Next episode, the second, third to last issue of uh, Cable, Cable number 10. But that's for next time. Now let's talk about... uh, I, th- I think this is an ending of this arc. I mean, it's going to have to be the ending of the arc because we're going into Hellfire Gala. And I, I would like to thank uh, Ben Percy for not mentioning the Hellfire Gala like 500 times during this issue, like most of the other books in this line are doing, because, boy, am I tired of that. Um, now, looks like we're wrapping this thing up here, which isn't entirely good and also isn't entirely bad. You know, I'm happy that it's behind us, at least this bit of it, because... This Xeno stuff has been very boring to me. Um, the bad part is, we still don't know much about Xeno. They've been the uh, thorns in the side of this book since day one. And here we are, you know, we're about to enter the 20s here, and we still don't know a whole lot about them. They still haven't had, like, a big confrontation just yet, so this is just something that's going to continue uh, rolling on here. And, uh, 
boy, uh, they're really taking the time with this one. My main takeaway here is something that we actually theorized as we were reading uh, this little arc, and that was the question of whether or not there was more than one uh, legit physical Quentin Quires on this Earth uh, since before X of Swords. And it sure seems like there were, huh? I mean, the one that we found in the Xeno Lab here, or the factory in, uh, in Nuke, it looks like it was alive until the end of this issue. So it would seem as though we had ourselves a dupe. And uh, I think it, uh, it's been a long time since we started this little arc, uh, but one of the things that I think I theorized was that uh, Quentin was so... Um, he was uh, so unprotective of uh, his life and his vitality because maybe he knew there was another version of himself out there. Like, and he was not the true version, because we saw him die in a number of silly ways when this arc opened, you know. I think he was, like, run over by, like, a steamroller, right? And he was, like, eaten by a cow or a shark or something. Something silly like that. So we see all these way, way silly ways for Quentin to die. And uh, one of the things that we were talking about was, like, hey, you know, maybe he knows that he's not the genuine article. And, in fact, it looks like maybe he wasn't. I mean, he is now, I guess. But, uh... It takes us back to the concept of uh, discontinuity, because if we had two Quentins running around, or not running around, but existing, because one was tied up to a machine with tubes, but those are experiences, right? That Quentin, I guess we could, we couldn't call him Quentin Prime, because he's probably, you know, the hundredth version of Quentin that we've had, but he's more Prime than the one that's been running around hanging out with Phoebe, right? Because he was there first. So he has all these memories. He has all these experiences of being tortured and tied up and just beaten and dragged. And our current Quentin doesn't have any of that. So, I mean, and, you know, he shouldn't want any of that. But it just speaks to the greater issue of the discontinuity between, um, between previous versions and current versions and probably future versions as well. It's a, it's a hole in the resurrection protocol um, protocol. You know, that we're supposed to be getting the characters as close to what they what they should be each time out due to the backups and stuff. I, I really, you know, it's I, I'm thinking more about it here, and it's like, if there were two, wouldn't Cerebro pick up on that? I don't know. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. Maybe I'm missing something that's completely obvious. I <laughs> really don't know. Um, let's go over to Domino. Now, Domino, her memory is kind of a mess as well. And this speaks to more of that discontinuity, but in, in a different sort of way, because hers is more uh, deliberate. She knows that her that her memories were edited, despite the fact that she asked for them not to be. No one's told her, hey, by the way, you said you didn't want them altered, and here they are. You'd figure if that were the case, Domino would, uh, she'd have some questions. And she hasn't, which, you know, if, if I can let my head cannon run wild here for a bit... I wonder if that's a way of keeping her more pliable to the Krakoan cause here. Keeping her just in line. You know, she's going to be a good soldier. We don't have to worry about her trauma. We don't have to worry about her asking questions. She's just there to be a boot on the ground with a nasty, you know, bio gun on her hand and a bio claw thing on her hand. And if she dies, she dies. If she lives, she lives. But uh, she's always going to be doing what... Xavier needs her to do. It seemed kind of uh, 
kind of wonky where, you know, she remembers being in this place despite the fact that that was all taken from her. Now, I mean, that can go a few different ways here. Does that mean that the the memory removal or the, you know, just any sort of personality trait experience removal from a uh, from a hatchling, is there anything residual there? Is it an imperfect sort of a thing? Like the omission, is it... Because the way we thought about it before, at least I did, was that, okay, well... We have the five. They do what they do. Xavier tells them, hey, we don't want that trauma. So they, you know, bingo, bango, the trauma's gone. Or they dial back to an older version of Cerebro here. We don't know how many backups we have. I mean, I back up my blog like twice a month, you know, and I keep everything. So I've got a folder with like every two weeks, there's a new, you know, XML file with my entire blog on it. Do they do that with the uh, with the Krakoan brains here, the mutant brains? Uh, like, did Xavier just decide, okay, well, we're going to dial back to about six months ago, and then we'll we'll bring that domino back? I, I don't know if that's the case here. If it is, well, then there's something definitely wrong here because she remembers being in this place and she remembers being very angry about that. So, I don't know. I feel. It's it's one of those feelings like we're building the house on the swampland again. Like the foundation is just kind of in pieces, floating around, not really stable. We're really uh, taking liberties with this stuff here, and I don't know. I really don't know. But uh, those are my main story takeaways here. I can't let this issue go without mentioning the art. This isn't Joshua Kassar. Um It's not terrible. Uh, it's just... Uh, a little rough. Um, it's a little rough. Uh, it looks almost evocative of like an underground style um, in the way that the faces are drawn. It's uh, it doesn't fit the story. Uh, the monster looks great. The Quentin monster looks uh, really cool. The the scenery looks great. It's just um, the faces of our main cast. It's yeah, not for me. Not not something I I really appreciated. But uh, overall, I mean, we're through this story. We're getting into the Hellfire Gala. Don't know what we're doing out the other end of the Hellfire Gala, but uh, I suppose we'll figure that out in a few months. So that's all I got to say about this issue. But before we go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters here. First, one from our friend Jesse, who's talking about, well, uh, our favorite book of the last little while, Way of X number one. He says, hey, Chris, I'm noticing that the books I like the most are the books that are digging into the lore and laws of Krakoa. Hellions, New Mutants, X-Factor, and now Way of X. I had my doubts about this book at first, but when I sat down and read it throughout the day, I loved it. Finally, Kurt is a character who does not seem to be under the influence of whatever is going on. He wants to dig in for the deeper questions. Here's someone next to Havoc and Scout who seems to worry about death. I really did not like Pixie's death, and I think we're meant to feel like that. Like death is something to not be concerned about, but it's still a horrible thing. I also like how Kurt still worships the god he did before Hoxpox. So many other characters seem to have forgotten their religious backgrounds in this era, and I like to see that Nightcrawler is not, even after his own resurrection. I have to go back to the end of the Rosenberg run to reread Blindfold's revelation to see if it works with these new times. And yeah, I was considering doing that myself, checking out the, uh, the Blindfold bit there, because, I mean, it feels like this is really paying tribute to... 
like a lot of different X-Men things here. I mean, you mentioned it here. Kurt still has his same faith, which is a callback to the pre-Hoxpox era. One of the few things that we're actually kind of bringing forward with us here. And it's also doing a great service to all the weirdness that's going on post-Hoxpox. It's really, really a wonderful book. Um, And it takes me back to our first discussions of The Crucible, where like, we started to question things like, um, you know, Death is not a big deal now, but death still sucks, right? I mean, this is something that someone will still have to experience. They will experience the lights going out, right? I don't know how you wrap your head around that and just be like, oh yeah, you're just a, you're not a, you're not a death virgin anymore. It seems very, very bizarre, and I'm glad that we're finally addressing it here. Jesse continues, Way of X has made its way to the top of my read pile each month. X or ten stars. I have not listened to your review on this book just yet, but I have it in my queue for the next time I get to listen. One more thing. I am so sick of hearing about the gala and about Jumbo Carnation that I've lost all interest in the Hellfire Gala. Being a mind-washed zombie, I'll still be reading it, but I just want to puke every time someone mentions it's in the books. I'm so glad that Way of X didn't say a thing. Yes, um... I feel like every time I see... I've said this before. It's like a broken record now for me. Every time someone mentions the gala, I am less excited for the gala. And when they first announced it, I was very excited for it. I thought it was going to be fun. I thought it was going to be, you know, the next big story. I mean, it is going to be the next big story, but we just don't need to take like a two-page break from every single one of these issues where, oh, Jumbo Carnation has his, uh, you know, has his measuring tape up to, you know, Cyclops's arm or or Cable's inseam. I, I don't need to see that. We, it, What was it? It was Sword, the, uh, the a few episodes back where Fabian Cortez is, is, you know, pleading his case like he's been given the floor to do. And Storm's sitting there going, don't we have a gala to prepare for? It's like, shut up. <laughs> Please just stop. I'm... I'm still looking forward to to uh, to seeing what the gala is all about. Uh, a few of those issues look like they're going to be a lot of fun, and I'm also mostly looking forward to getting past the gala so we can get into whatever the next stage of this story is going to be, and we can get our new team of X Men and maybe maybe feel like we're hitting the ground running at some point uh, during during this run, which is uh, not something that we're seeing very often, unfortunately. But Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that wonderful and challenging Way of X book, and I hope when you do get around to listening to the episode, you enjoy my take on it as well. Next, our friend Evan wrote in with some last annihilation questions here. Uh, He says, In a development I'm sure you'll be thrilled about, Guardians of the Galaxy is crossing over with S.W.O.R.D. Marvel announced today that Guardians of the Galaxy number 15 will include the Guardians' quote, tense showdown with Magneto, and includes, quote, an ending no one will see coming to set up The Last Annihilation, which I believe Old Man Cable is involved in. The promo art released includes Nova punching the helmet off Magneto, which is no way to treat Wolverine's toilet. I I, <laughs> I had to include it just for that last line there, because, uh, yeah, Wolverine peed in it, didn't he? Yeah. <clears throat> But yes, we will be covering, for better or for worse, we will be covering all of the Last Annihilation stuff, uh, at least the stuff that the Sword or Krakoan characters figure prominently in. If there are things that aren't, I'll probably still grab them. I have everything added to my DCBS order, just in case. Um, But if they're not something... If if the contribution to the X quarter isn't... uh, 
isn't sizable enough. We'll just mention those in passing, and we will dig into the to the larger ones. Though uh, Guardians of the Galaxy number fifteen will be an episode that's already uh, scheduled on the uh, on the docket. Uh, whatever sword issues tie into it, and of course, uh, Cable uh, Reloaded will uh, will be something we will talk about. But thank you so much for that, Evan, and thank you for the uh, for the chuckle there about uh, Wolverine's toilet. <laughs> thank you so much. Now, one more thing before we go. This is a Monday episode, so let's look at the This Week in Marvel Unlimited and on store shelves. So Marvel Unlimited gives you four books, four books that uh, we have covered on the show. We got New Mutants number 16, which we covered in episode 169. Wolverine number 10, which we covered in episode 170. X-Men number 18, the first part of The Vault, which we covered in episode 171. And Marvel Voices Legacy Number 1, which we just recently covered in episode 192. So there's a foursome of books here that uh, that have episodes attached to them. Uh, let's jump ahead a couple days to what's going to be on shelves here. And I don't have episode numbers for these because I don't know the order in which the Hellfire Gala is supposed to be read, if there is any sort of order. So if anybody listening is buying these in real time, like going to the shop on Wednesday... If you wouldn't mind snapping a picture of the, you know, uh, coming soon page for me so I can figure out how to order these things, I would greatly appreciate it. So the books on shelves, we've got Hellions number 12, Marauders number 21, and X-Force number 20. All three are part of the Hellfire Gala. We do have a second printing of Way of X number 1, which is weird because every comic shop I'm in has about 30 copies of it. I don't know. I'm not going to argue. The more copies of Way of X number one we can get on shelves, the better, I suppose. Finally, for those of you who have uh, 150 or so bucks burning a hole in your pocket, there's a new printing of the Age of Apocalypse Omnibus coming out this Wednesday. And if you'd like to uh, have a couple of guys read along with you, you could check out Cosmic Treadmill episodes 100 through 105. It's something like... Ten hours of Age of Apocalypse that uh, me and Reggie did uh, back probably 2018 or so. So if you'd like to have a tour guide through that, we cover every single book. It's a, it's a long one, but uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. And we I'm pretty sure we gave bios to everybody who showed up on panel, kind of like we did with Crisis on Infinite Earths. So it was a good time. And uh, hey, if you buy the book or if you've just got the books handy and you want to have a... You want to have some voices in your head as you go through it? I think there there are probably far worse ways to go about that, right? But that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, If you'd like to reach out and get a hold of me, I would uh, love for you to do so. You can find me a few different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. On Instagram, 90sXmen. Or you could shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You could also call into the brand new X-Lapsed voicemail box. That's 623-396-5375 or 623-396-JERK, which, uh, as I mentioned in a previous episode, that's more, uh, you know, the Professor Xavier is a uh, and uh, nothing nothing off-color. Uh, it's the best I could do that was X-Men related. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was trying to find something that could fit. Found Jerk and just pictured that Kitty Pride, uh, that Kitty Pride panel, and uh, decided to go with it. So yes, six two three three nine six, Jerk. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could join us on the Facebook group. Our little group is '90s X Men. Pretty easy to find. 
And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You'll be able to find the uh, Age of Apocalypse series there if you're uh, so inclined there. Uh, and if you like what you hear over there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, and all that good stuff. It would really, really mean the world to me. Speaking of which, it means so much to me that you'd spend a little bit of your day with me today. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 198 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I hope it's not abundantly clear, but uh, allergies have been ravaging uh, my throat. <laughs> so uh, I might be a little bit raspier than usual today. I uh, hope it is not too noticeable, as I mentioned there. Um, today, I mean, we're talking about New Mutants, and it feels like it's been absolutely forever since we discussed an issue of New Mutants. Not that I was especially looking forward to spending any more time in Otherworld than I need to, but, uh, you know, still, there were some subplots here that I was enjoying. Um, I actually went back into the archives here to find out just how long it's been. Episode 169 from April 19th. Uh, that's six weeks and almost 30 episodes ago. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a long wait for uh, Issues of New Mutants. Anyway, let's get right into it here. This is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 17. Had a June 2021 cover date. Stories called Follow the White Rabbit. Written by Vida Ayala, art by Rod Reese. Letters, VCs Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolsky. Cover price, four bucks. Went on sale April 28th of 2021. Now we open with Amal Farouk checking in on Wolfsbane. Now, Rain's in a pretty bad way, having just found out that her son, Tyr, is still alive. Well, at least according to the Five and Cerebro. And when last we left her, she had returned to the Sextant, only to find it empty. She was expecting maybe for Danny to be there to, uh, console her. But all she found was a note, saying that, uh, she's going to Otherworld, and, uh, we'll, we'll soon get to that, unfortunately. So, Farouk is here to kinda... 
I don't know if the right word is relate to her, maybe? His ultimate goal here appears to be getting her, getting onto her good side so she'll give him a hand with his damaged young mutants. And, well, she's pretty much down for it. Uh, she starts off a little bit incredulous about how successful she might be, considering just how damaged she currently is herself, but at the end of the day, she's willing to give it a shot. Double-page spread of roll call and cred. Danny Moonstar, Karma, Wolfsbane, Shadow King, Anoli, uh, Scout, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl. Info page. It's a pact that Danny and, and Shan signed uh, with uh, Merlin in exchange for their freedom. Uh, the pact is signed in blood. It's a you know a bloody thumbprint, and it's worth noting that Merlin bleeds purple. Because why not? Now the gimmick here is that the girls have to head into Roma's realm in order to reclaim a vessel she had stolen from Merlin. And uh, I gotta say, this antagonistic Merlin-Roma relationship is still very weird to me. Um, Anyway, if they're able to get it back, they'll be pardoned for the high crime of... trespassing, I guess. And so, we join Danny and Karma as they're approaching the floating kingdom of Roma Regina on Pegasus Back and their entry into this realm is being kind of obscured or hidden thanks to a uh, little shadow and light show, courtesy of Merlin. You see, he's kind of manifested an illusion of a tremendous two-headed spider-like creature which just looms over the entire place. Which, well, yeah, would probably get people's attention and probably distract from the two tiny young ladies swooping in on Pegasus' back. So they land, and uh, they alter their appearance a little bit to fit in better here. Uh, They wear more... I don't know, medieval-y dresses? I don't know. They see the White Rabbit here, because this is a Wonderland riff, you see. Uh, like the title of the issue suggests, they uh, they chase it. Karma suggests that the bunny is one of Danny's manifestations, which last issue she denied, but now she's beginning to wonder herself. She does suggest that it represents, quote, someone desperate to be heard, and we'll find out more about that later. The girls wind up getting into a fight with some of Roma's men, and, uh, well... They, they fight them off. Back in the courtyard, other soldiers discover a bag that the girls had dropped, which is full of what they call witch-breed magics. Is, is this issue being written out of order? I, I mean, you know me. I love Rod Reese's art here, but uh, for a story being told in such a confusing way, maybe a more traditional artist could have helped to keep this all straight. Um... I'm sure we're supposed to be confused because, ooh-wee, Otherworld, but that doesn't make for a necessarily satisfying reading experience here. It just feels kind of like a, a bag of hammers here. It's just, I don't know. From here, we go back to Krakoa. And we're at the crow's nest in the wild hunt. And here we see Anole, No Girl, Cosmar, and Rainboy experimenting with their powers. You know, we're, we're getting into the synergies, right? We're trying to use our powers in tandem to make them stronger. And here we have a no-girl-cosmar synergy, wherein they shift their consciousness into a flower. Just to see if they can, I guess, but, uh, okay. So they do the thing, and the flower wilts, because honestly, what else is a flower going to do? Uh, Rainboy suggests that maybe trying to do the same thing to a corpse would yield better, or any, I suppose, results. And Anole likes the way he thinks. Welp, uh, that was a short respite because uh, we're already back to Otherworld. Um, Danny and Karma enter a treasure hall where they're able to locate Merlin's missing urn. They're then confronted by Roma, who looks wildly off-model, 
but considering Roma's original widow's peak-heavy design, um, this might be considered an upgrade. Now, Roma uses one of the witch-breed magic candles in order to question them, because we find out here that the candle is kind of a lie detector, or maybe a truth-finder sort of thing. And uh, it looks like uh, she's got karma bedazzled a little bit here, but then Danny reacts by projecting the original New Mutants, and also that two-headed spider thing for... Reasons? Um, I don't know. Maybe Rod just really wanted to draw the old-school New Mutants here. And hey, you know, it looks pretty cool, so I'll give him that. Danny tells Roma that the mutants just risked everything to save Otherworld, which I suppose is sort of kind of technically true, if we squint a bit. Uh, she tells Roma that uh, they're just here to reclaim that mutant boy, Josh, who went uh, missing through the portal last issue. She also calls out Roma for her, quote, centuries-old spat, Unquote, with Merlin, which, I mean, isn't true at all. <laughs> Unless time works very differently here, and we've crammed in several hundred years since those old Alan Moore Captain Britain stories, which I, I don't think we did. Now, Roma appreciates uh, Danny's spunk here, and she decides to take it easy on her. She tosses Merlin's missing vessel at her and says, uh, eh, she can have it for all the entertainment she just provided. We learn that the vessel is, well, just that. Nothing special at all, just a piece of crockery that the old man fancied. Roma says she'd, she'd have given it back to him had he asked her like an adult, but she knew that he wouldn't. Roma magics the vessel back to Merlin's place and then sends the girls to wherever the hell Josh is. She also tells them that she is now owed a favor to be called upon any time she pleases. Which, come on, can, can we please just stop using Otherworld for like a half a minute? Uh, we don't need this stuff hanging over our heads, do we? Come on. Anyway, let's jump back to Krakoa, and we're at the Academos Habitat. Anole is visiting Scout, who is living alone because X-23 is still in the vault. Which, I mean, she's been out of the vault for a little while now, so this issue must have shipped quite a bit later than originally intended. Uh, we see that her house is a mess because she's kind of depressed and lonely. We do see that she's not completely alone, because her pet Wolverine Jonathan is there with her. Now, Anale is here to inquire about the body farm at the Boneyard, which I thought was a top-secret sort of thing. <laughs> um, we saw the body farm established in recent issues of X-Factor so that Prodigy could study mutant decomposition. Now, quite why Anale is rattling Scout's cage about this, I really don't know. I mean... Maybe he thinks she has, like, an in with Dakin, Dakin? I don't know. Well, he gives Scout a literal TL semicolon DR explanation. <sighs> like, he actually says TL DR, which, um, could be just not. <laughs> I hate that. Uh, he tells her about their little synergist experiment and how they'd like to try and use it to shift consciousness into a corpse. Scout's like, hey, why don't you just get a husk from the hatchery? Anole says they already asked and got turned down. He reminds us that they won't allow Cosmar to get resurrected in a normal body as further indictment that the five don't care about what these kids want. And hey, we even get an editor's footnote directing us to New Mutants number 15 for all the deets. So holy cow, how about that? Scout rightly tells Anole that this all sounds like a really, really bad idea which causes him to flip the F out, like screaming. He gets right in her face, and he tells her that she just doesn't understand. 
I mean, she's got a normal human-looking body and face, and doesn't get that the less fortunate among them might want to have the opportunity to be beautiful, at least, you know, if even for a little while. I don't remember Anale being this self-conscious about the way he looks, but I guess we'll go with it. Ah, back to Otherworld, and we're at Sevilith, which is the vampire place where I think the Horseman Death has been, like, feeding everybody since X of Tens. Now it's here where Danny and Karma run into Josh, and they tell him it's time to come home, but... Well, he don't wanna. Now it's worth noting, Josh has a pretty devilish appearance himself, uh, not completely different from more current versions of DC's Blue Devil. Horns, blue skin, I mean, what else is there? Uh, he tells the girls that he fits in better here. And what's more, he can, like, walk into a room and nobody gives him a second look. Huh. So we just wrapped up a scene with Anale being self-conscious on Krakoa, and now... Josh kind of co-signs with that idea. We're going we're gonna to touch, touch upon that in a little bit. Now, Danny tells him he's being silly. Karma reminds him that, hey, you know what? If you die here, you die for good. To which he replies, so what? Wow. Uh, would you look at that? I mean, dude really is not buying into this Krakoan status quo, and I love it. He mentions that mutants have maybe swung too far on the other side of the persecution spectrum here. They're so used to being feared and hated that they've kind of overcorrected, emphasizing the strength of mutantdom rather than just letting mutants be. Josh says he doesn't want to be special. He just wants to be Josh. We also learn a little bit about his upbringing and how his father kicked him out of the house when his powers manifested. This led to him living in the woods, stirring up a bunch of rumors about the Jersey Devil being real. And, oh yeah, he, he lived in Jersey, which uh, might be even worse than Sprouting Horns. <clears throat> no, no offense to people from Jersey. I, I love you all. Now, it seems as though Josh has made his point here. And uh, Danny and Shan allow him to remain, so long as he checks in with them every month or so to assure them that he's still okay. Info page, some more uh, hot warpath dear diary action here. To which I ask, we're still doing this, huh? I really don't care. I'm not going into it. <laughs> I don't. I really don't need these uh, these t- these info pages. Back to the sextant, and we got Danny and Shan. They're home now. Danny manifests the white rabbit again, and uh, using one of those uh, weirdo Jamie Braddock's truth candles, they reveal it to actually be Trancoy Ma. That's Karma's twin brother, which is apparently continuing a story thread from the New Mutants Dead Souls miniseries, which I have not read. Uh, Now, that apparently ended with Shan absorbing Tran into her own body. Now, we wrap up with Karma asking Danny to be her partner in the Crucible. Perhaps hopeful that, should she die there, both of the Koi Ma twins could be brought back to life. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, a Just the X-Ma'am look at the Woman of, Women of Marvel one-shot and an excerpt from the Immortal She-Hulk one-shot from 2020. But that is something we will wade through next time. <laughs> now let's talk about this issue of New Mutants, which was kind of the very definition of a mixed bag to me. Um, you guys know me. I'm not a fan of Otherworld here. I'm really, really, really sick of it. Um, I, I would imagine a lot of people are, because it... It refuses to end uh, I would understand if we just had like a book called Otherworld That we could all just, you know, avoid <laughs> And it'll slip down into one of the bottom slots 
in the uh, top 100, but Marvel will still continue to publish it for reasons that nobody can um, figure out why. But I'm uh, really, really sick of Otherworld here. But I will say that the uh, conversation that Danny and Shan had with Josh in Otherworld, in Seveleth, uh, led to my main takeaway for this issue here, because this is something I'm not sure they're doing... Um, I'm not, I'm not sure they're doing this on purpose, but we have this sort of an emphasis on looks for Krakoa here, beauty on Krakoa, where, I mean, are we seeing... It used to be humans were the humans, mutants were the mutants, and, I mean, mutants were just together in their persecution. Here, when you remove the human element, right, there were no humans besides, you know, Kyle on uh, on Krakoa, right, and Shogo, I guess. But there are no humans there, so I think it is a very, I mean, for lack of a better term, very human thing for cliques to form and for class systems to kind of just manifest, you know, um, here, and again, I'm not sure if this is being consciously done or not, we're placing a high value on, uh, attractiveness and how easy it would be for a particular character to fit in as a human, right? We have Anole here saying, you know, we would like to be beautiful, you know, just even, even if just for a little while, so, and that almost kind of, uh, it kind of shines a light on why they tried doing it with a flower in the first place. Flowers are almost universally considered beautiful. And we have these kids who are outcasts. They are outcasts among the outcasts. And they find out that they can work in tandem to move their consciousness, and they put it into something that is almost universally considered pretty. You know, a flower. And they kill the flower. So what do they do now? They, I mean, there are bodies laying around on Krakoa, and if, uh, if maybe they can borrow one, they can, they can experience being normal or right or pretty or beautiful. And this is something that this isn't the first time we're seeing this, right? We had Cosmar go to Danny Moonstar back in issue fifteen, as the editors thankfully gave us a footnote for, to ask her to kill her in the Crucible so she can go come back pretty. And Danny said no, of course, because, you know, she, she is beautiful as a mutant, right? In her full mutantum, <laughs> she is beautiful. And we're going to get to that in a little while as well. But I would like to direct our attention to something that's going to be taking up, well, every single X-book uh, this coming month, the Hellfire Gala. Now, this is something that has placed emphasis on fashion, on beauty, on the elites of Krakoa looking good. And here we have these kids who are a little less fortunate in the aesthetics department, um, who have been, you know, sort of kind of cursed by their, uh, their mutant manifestation here, making them look... I mean, Anole looks reptilian. He's got, you know, two different sized arms. Cosmar is a warped mess. No girl is a brain in a jar. <laughs> Rainboy is water, you know? It's, uh, it's interesting that we're seeing all this stuff right on the eve of the Hellfire Gala, which is being presented as a very, very superficial, 
very uh, Hollywood elite sort of thing here. I mean, I was flipping through the official guide to the Hellfire Gal here while trying to decide whether or not we're going to devote an entire episode to the to the freebie. I still haven't decided yet. If anybody has any thoughts on that, please you know reach out and let me know. But I'm looking at it here, and they're talking about like live from the green carpet, you know, and uh, it's like wow, this really is like a Hollywood to do. And whether any of us want to admit it or not, I mean, attractiveness is capital in entertainment, right? Uh, Leading men and leading women are traditionally rather good-looking. And and again, I mean, this is a—everything like that is subjective, of course, but, I mean, speaking traditionally, uh, you know, quick and dirty, (laughs) it's the traditionally good-looking people. So we go into the gala here, which is coming across to me as a horribly vapid affair, um— where we're having we're having characters who we've seen with responsibilities kind of eschew the responsibilities to talk about what they're going to wear. You know, Storm wants to close out a quiet council meeting because oh oh golly we have the gala. You know, it's a uh, it's weird. And when we have an issue like this, I wonder if this is something we're supposed like are, are these are these uh, discontinuities that we're supposed to be noticing, or am I just noticing them because I'm really looking to take the piss out of the Hellfire Gala? I, I really don't know. Uh, so I would love to hear everybody's thoughts on on this take, because uh, it struck me as very odd, you know, in the timing. Now, we talked about Danny Moonstar refusing to do the favor for Cosmar, Right. Which brings us to the ending of this issue here, which was just racked with hypocrisy. Um, uh, Shan asks if Danny will be her partner. We don't get an answer from Danny, right? We don't get a yes, we don't get a no, we don't even get a reaction shot. It ends with Shan asking the question in a close-up on her own face. Now I'm thinking, if Danny does agree to do this, it's uh, it's very hypocritical, right? Uh, Shan... She's She has her mutant power, right? She is powered, so she shouldn't be eligible for the Crucible. But if they make an exception for her... Um, you know, I hate using terms like slippery slope because I think that's one of those things that we go to too often <laughs> when we want to try to make something into a bigger deal than it is. But this could lead to the you know classic slippery slope here. It's like, well, if you made the allowance for her, well, why can't you? kill Cosmar and let her come back as a uh, more normal, human-looking character. And what then about the clones? Why can't we bring a Madeline Pryor back, right? Why can't we bring the clones back? Why, why would we be worried about Scout? We're making allowances left and right. Let's just uh, throw all the rules out. You know, I feel like this could be that first domino. Uh, you know, not the character domino, of course, the little, you know, thing with the pips on it. Uh, this could be the first domino to tip that leads to... A lot more uh, inconvenient uh, questioning uh, around the uh, the regulations of uh, the resurrection protocols here, and if that's what it's leading to, then I got no problem with it. I, I want us to explore those kind of questions here. I want to know why you know preferential treatment's a thing, right? And uh, getting back to my original point here, um, it looks to be that there is something of a class system at play here in Krakoa itself. And uh, certain groups get allowances, certain groups do not. It really is starting to mirror the wider Earth, right? The wider world, the wider humanity, in just a uh, more micro way rather than a macro way. And 
I don't know, it may say something about the human condition that this sort of thing is inevitable in a way. And uh, if we're exploring those questions, I, I, hope, they, uh, I hope they do it with, uh, with tact, and I hope they give it enough time to, uh, to breathe a little bit, because I think these are some very, very important and very, very challenging questions that we, if this does go that way, we'll, we'll be talking about for quite a while, because, I mean, this is something where there is no wrong, there is no right, there is no black, there is no white. It's all gray and um, subject to perspective and interpretation. So I'm hoping that's the way we're going here. I'm going to resist the urge to complain a little bit more about Otherworld. I'll just say that uh, Rod Reese's work here was was gorgeous, just a little hard to follow in some places here. It really felt like um, the opening uh, handful of pages could have been shown in any order. They were just kind of all over the place. Uh, and uh, that you know that could be me being a little you know denser than usual, but uh, I just feel like it could have been told a little bit clearer. Then again, ooh wee, it's other world, you know, it's the other world effect. We're supposed to be confused. I'm, who knows? But uh, it doesn't make for a satisfying read, is what I'm trying to get across to uh, to everyone here. But overall, I you know end where I started. This was a this was a mixed bag. Uh, there was stuff to like. There was stuff to not like. It's all. Uh, yeah, mileage may vary, right? But I uh, think that's all I have to say about this issue here. Uh, before we cut on out, let's hop into the mailbag here. We have one letter from uh, our friend Andrew Franklin. He's talking about cable number 10. And he says, One of the elements of this series I've been enjoying is all the moments of Cyclops being a dad to Kid Cable. So I was glad that the bulk of this issue has the two of them together for a much-needed father-son chat. It's the same conversation that Cable's been having over the last several issues, but I still enjoy seeing Scott in dad mode. I have to imagine that Scott relishes having his son around, so I can believe he'd be strongly against Cable's plan to bring the grown-up version back. It's also really sweet that he wants his son on the new X-Men team. I would have liked more of Cyclops getting to be a dad after all this time. And speaking of the old man, I took the reveal of the light of Galador in possession of the older Cable we've been following to be the first confirmation that it's an older version of Kid Cable and not the original Old Man Cable. It wasn't ever clear to me before that before that, that this was definitely the case, so I found it to be pretty significant, especially if this is the old man who will be coming back into the Marvel books. And yeah, that was a huge reveal here, where we have the old man that we've been following for, you know, the better part of the past ten issues. He hasn't shown up in everyone. We had the, uh, you know, little X of Swords, uh, you know, break there. But we've been seeing him fairly often, and we didn't know who this was. I mean, we knew who it was. We just didn't know which it was. Uh, I think we were led to assume, and probably on purpose, that this was the old man just somewhere else in time, and that maybe somewhere down the line uh, we would have a confrontation between the, the two cables. Then again, we also didn't realize that this book was going to be canceled after 12 issues, so it maybe could have uh, boiled a little bit longer in the pot, right? But um, I was happy to see uh, the light of Galador in the in the different time, different place with the older Cable here. And we do uh, get a look at his face here, and it doesn't quite look as haggard as the traditional old man Cable. It does have uh, almost like a youthful look to it, it's just he's older. So I took that, and that might just be in my head, you know, I, I may have just been, I mean, Phil Noto is a very stylized artist, right? Uh, so maybe that was just something that I saw that wasn't meant to be seen, but it looked like he had a, like a, like a softer complexion, 
right? A little bit less haggard, and uh, and he was also wielding the light of Galador. So, very interesting, very interesting stuff. And I'm wondering if this, you know, um, old version of the kid Cable is going to come back and return the favor from extermination and uh, take out his uh, his younger counterpart. Though, I mean, if he does, then doesn't he disappear? I, I, I don't want to get into time travel stuff. I've never understood it, <laughs> and I never will. Uh, Andrew continues. These X-Book info pages are a real boon to authors whose stories need to be resolved quickly, aren't they? Uh, the one we get here isn't even pretending to be an in-universe item. It's just information from Duggan's story notes. Oh, by the way, Cable's old space station Greymalkin is back with a new AI named Bell, and it's known about Strife for a while, and it's just waiting to show up in the story. And it would have been a cool reveal, but we got no time for that because we've been cancelled. <laughs> and it even mentions the Hellfire Gala, because of course it does. Uh, will there be a Bell for this ball? Most certainly, right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, I mean, we give, we give the writers a lot of guff for over... Relying, I guess, on the uh, on the info pages, but here, I mean, it stands to reason that we only have you know uh, forty pages left to this thing, right? If we're lucky, there'll be forty pages left to this thing because I'm part of me is figuring that like the 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 last third of issue twelve is going to be like a lead into the uh, to the stupid Guardians of the Galaxy thing, but again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So yeah, an info page is definitely a a boon. To a creator who's like, hey, <laughs> hey, you're standing in that rug right now. We're about to yank it out from under you. So yeah, definitely good and responsible use of the very limited and more limited by the day uh, paginal real estate allotted to this cable series. Andrew continues. That was the second obligatory gala mention this issue. The first one being the scene where Kid Cable catches up to Cyclops while he's being fitted for an outfit. And while reading this scene, I couldn't stop thinking about how super relatable all this gala talk has been. I can't count how many times I had to worry about getting my fabulous outfit just right so I can impress everyone at one super fancy gala or another. Or how often I had emergencies come up that I just didn't have time to deal with because, hello, I've got to get ready for a gala. We've all been there, right, folks? I'm just kidding around. The gala stuff doesn't really bother me, but since it's been pointed out so much, it now sticks out like a sore thumb to me. I hope I enjoy reading the crossover, because I planned on reading them all, and it does seem like some interesting things will come out of it. And yeah, I, you know, part of me's looking forward to it, part of me's dreading it. I think that's just, um, my conditioning as a Marvel fan. <laughs> Anytime we get an event on the horizon, like, part of me is like, oh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what that is, and then the other part of me is like, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> And the Hellfire Gala is uh, definitely, you know, no exception to that uh, to that vibe. Um, and the fact that, like, when we started hearing about the gala, it was uh, seldom. We didn't hear much about it. And, like, I think all of our ears perked up, or at least mine did. It was like, oh, okay, that's something to keep an eye out for. And then all of a sudden it was everywhere. It was just like, oh, yeah, the gala. Oh, the gala. The gala. Oh, the gala. Oh, can't talk about that. We got the gala. And, uh... A little too much. A little too much. It's almost like it's trying to convince us that it's more important than it's going to be, which, uh, I mean, that that's just comics now. So who knows? <laughs> who knows? Uh, Andrew continues. The thing I really hated about this issue is the talk between Emma and Cable and how they reframe Apocalypse's past villainy as, no, actually, he was trying to make us all stronger, and it was a good thing. 
Excuse me? I find that insulting. I never liked how much the Dawn of X books focused on Apocalypse, or how echoes of his old philosophy were so readily taken by the Krakoans for things like the Crucible, which I hate, or any of the Iraqo crap, and how Hickman tried to reframe his past actions, but this is next level. Actually, Cable, all the abuse you suffered was good, and you deserved it, because he was just trying to make you better. That's just garbage, and I find it distasteful how we're supposed to see Apocalypse now as some great mutant hero. Now, you see, that's an excellent point that I completely glossed over in my, uh, in my show notes, because it was just a... It felt like a... Um, I don't know, it felt less of an indictment on... Or less of an attempt to change the, uh, like the prism through which we view Apocalypse, and just like something of a meaningless soundbite. You know, just something that they said because they thought it was something that's supposed to be said because we're all supposed to be trusting this guy now. I mean, he's not there now, but we're trying to trust this guy, and you're you're absolutely 100% right. They've really co-opted a lot of his point of view and his um, methodology into governing Krakoa here. You mentioned the Crucible. I mean, that's—we saw that Apocalypse was the Crucifer. You know, in the first appearance of the Crucible, that at least the one that we saw. So yeah, it's 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 a weird reframing, and it's one of those things that, uh, well, this is a an X-lapse chestnut. But um, how do we walk it back, right? Um, we've accepted Apocalypse as a maybe not so much a hero, but uh, you know, not not necessarily a villain either. And since we have this brand new origin for Krakoa and the you know how it's centuries and centuries and centuries old and we had the one island uh you know okara and apocalypse was there and that whole you know misreading of what mutants were you know no longer children of the atom affected by uh you know bombs and stuff this is a race that was just always around and um making them something that uh just doesn't feel necessarily right to me so i think i saw the reframing of apocalypse's past as Kind of a play on all of that, you know, like he was the first of us or one of the first of us. And I don't know. I really, really don't know here, especially since, I mean, who knows when we're going to see him again. And when we do see him, is he going to be the apocalypse that left at the end of X of Swords? Or is it just going to be a raving villain like we saw throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s? I don't know. I really, really don't know. But uh, I do agree with you. I do agree with you here. We're just... uh we're viewing Apocalypse in a whole different light now. And it's funny, I was just talking to a friend uh, working on the 200th episode of this show here, and we were taking a look at uh, handbook um, entries and looking at how much of the distant past was very, very sparsely uh, notated. But for the past five years or so, you can get a full page out of that. And uh, comparing that to just... News and history in general, because right now everyone is a journalist, everyone is a reporter, everyone is a writer, so everything that happens now is very, very well documented, where even 10 years ago, it wasn't quite the same way, much less 100 years ago or 200 years ago. History is more dense now than it has ever been, and it'll only get denser as we go. So comparing the entries in a Marvel handbook to real history, it's weird to see how how they're kind of parallel here, where great big swaths of a character is just omitted. 
you know, things from their origin, things from their first five years in print. But then you get to, like, the current stuff, and it's just jam-packed with, like, oh, well, then there was this event, and this event, and this event, and this event, and this character did that, 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 and they died here and came back here and then died again here, and then they killed this person. And then they were depowered, and then they were repowered, then they found armor. All the stuff in the past five years or so is just crammed in there, but all the past history is very, very sparse. So we have a character like Apocalypse here, and we're kind of using that same sort of precedent where it's like, well, only what happened recently matters. You know, we learned about Arako. We learned about, I mean, we learned about Okara and Krakoa and Arako. That's new information, right? We learned about the original Four Horsemen, right? That's new information. It's retconned, of course, but we're paying all this attention to that, but we're not going to talk about everything that Apocalypse did to Cable, you know, X-Factor number 68, you know, infecting him with the techno-organic virus and having him sent to the future. Then the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix where, you know, we find out about how Apocalypse created Strife and what Strife did to everybody. We had the Executioner song. We had all this stuff. And it's kind of just omitted. It's seen as not as important as what's happened since Apocalypse landed on Krakoa in House of X number 5. It kind of sucks, but I think that's just, I think that's just what comics are now. You know, we're not expected to have these, we're not expected to have long-term memory unless the story calls for us to have long-term memory. So all the atrocities of old are kind of just swept under the rug, and all we're worried about is, uh, you know, the the big blue magician, who uh, hung out in Jamie Braddock's basement, um, cutting apart Morgan Le Fay. Right. But uh, Andrew wraps up with, but never mind all that, we have a gala to prepare for. So until we see those head-turning fashions on the red carpet, make my neck slapsed. Well, we know it's going to be a green carpet because it's, uh, you know, Krakoa and and green. And uh, yes, (laughs) but thank you so much for that email. There was a lot to uh, think about and talk about there. Thank you so much for uh, all that food for thought and all that great discussion. Now, if anyone else out there would like to write in, be part of the show, I would, uh, you know, encourage you to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We also have the X-Lapsed voicemail. You can give us a call at 623-396-JERK. Yes, that is 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And uh, while you're there, if you dig what you hear, or just appreciate the effort that goes into it, or over 600 episodes on that channel, many thousands of hours. So uh, if you appreciate the effort, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show, Maybe tell a friend or two. It would really, really mean the world to me. But that is where we'll leave it for today. Um, I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.